Hey guys, what's up? It is week 206. Let you guys know the Severn contest is still going on. We'll draw on uh, week 208 for the four-year anniversary, so in a couple weeks. So if you want to enter to uh, for a chance to win Perdita Durango, Day of the Beast on 4K, a Scream in the Streets on Blu-ray, and um, Nosferatu in Venice, all you got to do is send an email to David Parker, uh, 1986 at live.com. So it's in the description box and all the information below. So yeah, they're great releases. I covered them a few weeks back. So if you're interested, check it out. So since uh, Creepshow uh, Season 2 is back on Shudder, it's about the only uh, television show I keep up with, I guess I'm going to do a little bit of Creepshow recap. I think I've covered everything except the cartoon episode, which for some reason I can never find on Shudder. I didn't look too hard. But uh, so the Creepshow Episode 1 Season 2. Yeah, it's two shorts on there. So far, uh, so good. So the first one on here is definitely a nostalgia piece. It, it talks to all those monster kids that had Aurora model kits growing up and stuff like that. And although that was before my time, I still had the Aurora model kits growing up. Um, so, yeah, so what happens here is we have this, uh, this young kid who's obsessed with monsters, he's bullied, he's picked on, his mom, it, it's very on the nose, but it does not, that, that doesn't necessarily mean it, it, it's not, um, successful at what it's trying to do. It's very on the nose, but it's, it, it does exactly what it's supposed to do, and it works. So basically what happens is he has a mom with cancer, is very sick, and, uh, an aunt he really likes who's married to a douchebag and Kevin Dillon, very well cast, Kevin Dillon's very good at this, and, uh, this is a period piece too, I believe it's probably, what, the 80s or 70s or somewhere around that time, so, uh, basically what happens is the mother dies, she, he has to live with the abusive uncle who's kind of a loser, doesn't have a job, that kind of deal, and his aunt, so, uh, his mom always told him these like wonderful things about film, and if, if it's there, it'll live on within you. So you kind of start to uh, see this kind of thing forming with the film and all that stuff. But the, it, it's a direct shout out to the um, original Creep Show with the wraparound story um, and ordering the voodoo doll out of the the magazine. So I'll leave it at that to a certain extent. Uh, but it does end up incorporating some uh, Universal monsters and all that kind of stuff, which is really cool and fun. And and of course, like any good anthology show or movie, just desserts are served, and they're served well. Uh, yeah, so this one I thought was really well done, and uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, now on to the next one, which I actually do remember the title of this one. I think it is a, a video fundraiser of the dead or something like that. I, I'll put the things below in the opening. And uh, yeah, I've heard people saying they compared this one to Evil Dead for good reason. I even heard uh, one of my friends, Mike Merriman, say that this would have been a better sequel than uh, the or better fit in the franchise than the remake of Evil Dead, a reboot or whatever the hell you want to call it. And I wouldn't really disagree with that either. So basically what we have here is this PBS uh, fun fundraiser going on. Also feels very period piece. I doubt PBS. I know that NPR and that kind of stuff does fundraisers and stuff like that, but I just don't really see people watching that much uh, PBS kind of style television anymore. Maybe I'm wrong. But essentially, maybe they need the fundraising now more than ever. Um, so basically what happens is we have this fundraising PBS style show. There's this kind of reading rainbow show on there, or just like a lamb chops kind of deal with this really rude lady who obviously is very sweet and nice when the cameras are on, but when they're off, she's horrible. There's also, um, an antique road show style show on there. And then there's a Bob Ross style show as well. 
But uh, Bob Ross' character has some things up his sleeves and kind of a dark past. So essentially what happens is this guy brings this book that was in his garage or his fruit cellar. You guys understand that shout out um, for years. And it's the Necronomicon. So before they appraise it, they have to open it with this key. And there's a lot of great gags and everything. It's Ted Raimi plays the guy who brings the book in so it's it's winking directly at the camera of course you know exactly where this is going evil dead style demons on a pbs style fundraising program um basically broadcasting out to the entire world i laughed out loud at a couple of the gags i really enjoyed it uh ted ramey is great the bob ross painter is actually fantastic as well <laughs> and i love his backstory without spoiling too much obviously kind of a shout out to that old uh you know that myth about um geez uh mr Rogers being a, a Vietnam sniper with like 20 confirmed kills that whole whole fake kind of thing that there was that was complete bullcrap so if anybody's still running around saying that that's not true that wasn't true but that's obviously kind of a shout out to that but anyways uh, I enjoyed this one it has some gore uh, I could have watched a whole feature length of this I think so uh, anyways uh Movies that take place or, or TV shows that take place when they're actually like on set live television is always kind of fun. I immediately think Howling or Nightmare City has a really cool scene where the, the um, infected, because they're not zombies, right, guys? Don't want don't to upset anyone. They're zombies. I'm calling them zombies. The zombies run amok during the uh, broadcasting and start ripping off all the people's shirts and before they stab them because I guess that's what zombies do. Rip off your shirt before they stab you. So maybe they are infected. Zombies don't do that. Um, Italian zombies do, though. So anyways, uh, really recommend The Creep Show. Uh, enjoyed it quite a bit. And um, if you ever wanted to see the Gillman face off against the mummy, then or the creature from the Black Lagoon, Gillman copyright. Um, yeah, so yeah, check it out. It's good stuff. And I'll probably uh yeah yeah there's should be a little maybe a, a series kind of show thing here that I, I found and then i enjoyed that so yeah and i i didn't want i don't even watch trailers so i'm spoiling a trailer i don't even watch them but i did check out the here in the very beginning that had keith david narrating it and i was like yeah he's gonna be in an episode so uh love the creep show stuff keep it coming Okay, this one we have up is uh, from Arrow Video and is The Invisible Man Appears, also including The Invisible Man vs. The Human Fly, which is an absolute ridiculous title, but I love it. So these are Japanese Invisible Man uh, films. One, uh, The first one, Invisible Man Appears, made in 1949. So uh, it's been a long time since I've watched the original Invisible Man, and so I don't know if I've ever saw any of the sequels. But anyways, uh, yeah, so it's a long series, about five or six films from Universal, and then some other Invisible Man movies popped up, Invisible Man. Maniac, these ones, of course, Hollow Man and um, Visible Man from last year. So a bunch of these popped up. And there's actually a special feature on the disc with Kim Newman kind of breaking down all the Invisible Man movies and talking about these. But I, I found it really interesting that I really had never heard of these Japanese Invisible Man stories, which kind of crazy. Um, and it's also really interesting that they even exist to me. So the first one, The Invisible Man Appears, is basically we have this love triangle going on with these two scientists. And like they, they kind of are following this lead scientist who's like this kind of they look up to him and he has a daughter so they both really like the daughter they're both kind of courting her and they decide to make a gentleman's bed i guess i'll call it that says whoever gets to the the discovers their experience you know their experiment first gets to ask her hand in marriage which pretty dated right but it is what it is it's 1949 so before any of that can happen the good doctor leaves a note and he's disappeared but we know that he's actually been kidnapped so um and he's been working on invisible man serum as as well as one of the young kind of scientists and basically what happens is um the serum's been stolen or basically he's been stolen and held captive and there's some bad guys that want some riches and it gets really complicated and convol a little convoluted here and there and you don't really know who exactly the Invisible Man is, and then there's some competition and everything. Um, the ending is actually pretty 
pretty sad, pretty tragic. I actually like how it ends. Um, the movie overall is decent. I don't absolutely love it, but I found it very interesting and unique in, in some ways, but also kind of similar to like those spy espionage movies. Both of them kind of feel that way. Um, like that Japanese spy uh, movie about the motors and stuff. They kind of have that kind of gimmick too. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of players in this and everybody's backstabbing everybody and there there's some silly things going on. But uh, yeah, I, I, um, I would check it out and they do have some cool effects too. But uh, I guess we're going to talk a little bit about the Invisible Man versus the Human Fly, which the title, I was like, this one was made in 1957. And I, I was just kind of laughing at the title. I was like, I can't wait. Uh, and right when you think 1957, although I believe the original Fly, was it was it 58? I can't remember 100%. Maybe it was before that with Vincent Price. But right when I heard 50s Invisible Man versus the Human Fly, I immediately thought like a Baxter Fly from Turtles or the original Fly. So I was like, ooh, we're going to see like an actual old school like Universal Monsters Brawl movie. But it's, it's a lot different than that so it's not a direct sequel to the original movie the uh the way the invisible man is created is completely different it's not the same and um the human fly is not really a human fly um he doesn't look like a human fly he's just really tiny and carries out acts of terrorism so basically a bunch of murders are happening and uh they're not they no there's no witnesses they're in planes they're in parks and right in front of everybody and nobody knows how it's happening and they start to think some sort of supernatural element and they start to look into this invisibility kind of weapon that turns certain things invisible but they have not perfected it to do it to people yet but not yet right so basically and then they stumble across all these people they realize that there was a common thread and they start to kind of look into it and we realize that the um it's actually a human fly has been shrinking himself down and the serum he's using is making him crazy kind of very similar you know because anybody that turns invisible goes mad like the first film i probably should have mentioned that or in the hg Wells story i think you go mad from it too so uh, basically we do have kind of a showdown and some terrorist acts this one i feel ah, man which one do i feel like if you take them both elements from both they would fit more with the invisible man if you take elements from both of them but um i do think i preferred the first one maybe possibly this one is a little goofier and sillier and has more um you know trying to get a necklace and goons and more tv kind of style to me like bad guys and characters but they're both interesting they're both kind of cool and i think they were supposedly lost so the elements aren't great on them but they look pretty good um yeah check them out the invisible man appears in the invisible man versus the human fly Okay, this next one here is the feature debut film of Nico Makarakis. This is from Arrow Video. This is Death Has Blue Eyes. And that cover is awesome. Like, I didn't even register that this was a Nico movie. Nico did Island of Death, The Zero Boys, um, so many movies. Uh, he's had a lot of uh, Blu-ray releases in the past few years. Nightmare at Noon. Jeez, who? Um, Arrow did a couple other ones, too. I can't think of Hired to Kill, or I think so, with Brian Thompson and Oliver Reed. But Nico Makarakis is a... a Greek director and he's a really interesting director like he's one of these guys that I love his interviews he's always so full of energy he's always funny he um he will self-depreciate at times and he's goofy and is is like he plays jokes with his editing and takes like these different elements and stuff like that regardless I've always been a fan of him personally no matter how I feel about most of his movies um which though I don't want to say it like that because most of his movies I like so there we go. So I guess it's a it's a positive. I like his movies and I like him. Um, in particular, Island of, of Death because I am a sick person and I like the crazy video nasty stuff. But so we have here Death Has Blue Eyes. And this is his feature, his debut. So I don't even know to go about this movie. It's obviously post-dub. You know, um, they probably didn't record sound there and then they dubbed it over in Greek and English. This version is in English. 
And this is a bizarre exploitation film. It's very kitchen sink, but also feels a little ahead of its time in some of the elements. So we have these two kind of buddies that are just low rent criminals. They they do these kind of criminals. It's all played kind of for laughs at first. Like they, they uh, the one guy steals this old guy's identity and the airport takes his plane ticket and flies to meet his friend. And uh, pretty pretty soon they're, they're like using his identification and trying to charge, you know, rooms to the, like uh, at hotels, charge like different rooms, the bill and all that kind of stuff. And some people overhear him and uh, it turns out that it is this older woman with a younger woman and the younger woman is a psychic and she can read his mind. So we're already starting completely crazy, right? And it appears that we have some sort of weird kind of group that is focusing on the psychic woman and wants to eliminate these friends that are going to get involved with the psychic women and everything like that. Did I mention that there is a menage a trois love scene fairly early in the movie and uh, some a strange strange scene where the woman is constantly dressed nude and kind of like a um, maid's outfit or like an apron and nude. It's just super weird and silly and also light but but dated so we have all that going on like this weird love triangle this buddy movie and we have this psychic kind of element supernatural thing going on and and there's just so many weird scenes within the movie like they decide to leave one of the friends um the psychic girl and the other friend just to be assholes and he's wandering and he's really upset and then all of a sudden this race car driver wings around the road and picks him up and it's a beautiful woman and they almost have sex and it's just like this is so weird and, and at the end that we get these big stunts with helicopters and it's just it is fairly inept to be honest at times where i'm like where are we going with this what are we doing but um there is some cool stuff in here like when they zoom in on the eyes i liked and just that it's so weird and puzzling that i kind of was interested in it i don't love it but it's it, it it's you know it's a peculiar movie to be honest so that's death has blue eyes and i know the psychic stuff was used in a lot of movies but in this kind of way i mean guess it's kind of fairly early this is 76 i think he listed at 74 so it was early it was early for this kind of thing with all this mixture of stuff and everything like that just a batshit weird movie but there is an interview with nico makaraskis where he kind of like they like um it's weird like arrow seems to have partaken it and they like wish him a happy birthday and do all this kind of elaborate stuff with it and it's really cool and um he just seems very grateful for arrow and i just like the guy and everything he has to say about the movie he's always been very honest so he'll basically tell everything that's true and he's just like why do people like the movie maybe it's the you know the explosions the buddy stuff and, and he's right you know he understands film and he understands editing and i think he edits like the new trailers and stuff i think he's a professional editor so like a lot of his trailers like the new cut will look very modern like that like they look like they're made cut by a very young person and everything like that and, and nico's like 80 years old so um just sharp sharp guy um so yeah anyways there's also an interview with one with the lead actress in here so yeah it's a nice release from arrow of a weird movie and they do say jello kind of inspirations on the back i believe where is it at and i was just like huh when i saw the term jello and i was watching it i was like really um I, maybe i'm just misremembering everything here but uh, I, I honestly, with the title and just kind of first glance, I was like, is this a Giallo? Death Has Blue Eyes? And then you see Nico. I'm like, hmm, that's strange. But anyways, uh, Death Has Blue Eyes. We're checking out, especially if you're a Nico fan to see where he started. Um, he always started big, man. He was ambitious. It's not like he was just going in and, I'll just make a little small movie. Uh-uh. But uh, oh, in that feature at that kind of show early in his career, too, how he worked on television and all that kind of stuff, too. So, yeah, it's nice to see. Okay, this next one here, I'll be kind of brief with it. It is Hollywood High and Teenage Mother. It is one 
one of the Dark Force drive-in double features. And I guess I'll start with Hollywood High, also from 1976, if I'm not mistaken. And I don't really know how to go in depth about this one because it's very sexploitation, light, goofy, uh, 80s sex comedy deal. So basically it follows a story of three, uh, a group of kids, three guys, three girls, and they're all kind of, or is it four guys and four girls? I cannot remember 100%. Um, it's four guys and four girls. So they're all kind of just goofballs and all the women are super gorgeous and the guys are just kind of like crazy and goofy and it's just super weird and silly and the jokes are just nonstop but a lot of them don't land and they just have like some ADR moments but anyways um Every scene goes on for way too long, too. Like, they'll have these dance moments and these montage scenes, and they're goofy. But I did laugh a couple times. The dialogue is really, really goofy. Um, and it's just, I guess I, I just say it was light fare. Um, there is a scene, a food fight in here, that had me gagging. Because it's an Italian restaurant, and the kids are being punks, and the, the waiters and waitresses and the cooks, they all get upset about it. So they start having this elaborate, like, 15-minute fight scene with, like, Italian food. But it's all watered-down spaghetti, because they obviously... Obviously, we're using like, you know, didn't have enough sauce or something. and want to make it look red. So everybody's like getting this watered down spaghetti thrown in their face and thrown down their pants. And I'm just like, oh, man, I just anytime like food is like rubbed into people and just like people are covered in food. It's just I want to gag, even though I eat like a slob and I'm probably covered in food all the time. But I don't I don't have to see myself like in a mere eating or I probably wouldn't eat anymore. But um, just watching these people covered in nasty, like dry, like watery spaghetti. I'm just like, oh, it's just unpleasant but there is a subplot on here which i don't i mean i don't know where the movie's focus is to be honest like what is the major plot of this movie so the subplot is the plot i guess so they meet this uh this ex like uh movie star and she's like a man eater upper i guess like she just like invites the boys over and tires them out and there's this whole weird gag with her and everything like that but uh yeah i enjoyed the movie for what it was um it's stupid and it's full of nudity and sex and of course a perverse cop and of course stereotypical perverted teachers one of which who is the like over-the-top gay stereotype and they're both pedophile teachers that are like constantly like saying awful things and the the one teacher you know is making the kid do something awful so it is what it is um as for the b feature and i will call it a b feature it's teenage mother which is an older feature but it's kind of like a, a teen kind of exploitation film where I, it, it, this one didn't really do much for me. It, it was kind of a, a little bland, very bland, actually, kind of very boring. And then there is a real uh, like pregnancy shown in it, which is kind of just like, whoa, that kind of takes you back. But it basically follows the story of a, a young girl who wants to be pregnant and she makes up this lie and there's like an attempted rape on her and stuff like that. This one did not do very much for me, to be honest. But when that uh, birth scene happened, it, it kind of takes you back. And it's like one of those deals where they're like, you can't pass this on the censors. Like, but it's showing the miracle of life. And they're like, uh, I guess you're right. But um, anyways, uh, if, it, if you're interested in the B-movie double features, Hollywood High and Teenage Mother, check it out. Uh, I would stick it with Hollywood High, I think is the better of the two. But hey. Okay, this next one here is from Culture Shock Video. And this is Good Night, God Bless, a.k.a. Lucifer. I actually prefer the British title, Good Night, God Bless. I think this is, a, this is a British film. It was made in Britain or released in Britain first. Here it was Lucifer, which is a very generic, forget kind of title. This is a movie that was shot on 16mm, but edited on tape, so I think it's a tape master. Best it's going to look, okay? And it looked pretty solid for a tape master on here. So Good Night, God Bless opens up with a pretty gnarly scene, to be honest. I was kind of taken back. It opens up with a, like a school shooting of a, a priest kind of wandering. Uh, he's kind of 
like out of focus. You don't really see his face. He wanders in and he starts shooting all these kids down and they're, they're falling on the ground. And it's just, it doesn't really show that much, but the way it's edited is still effective enough. I mean, this is a low budget movie. It's a feature film debut by a guy named John Ayers or Ayers who went on to do monolith and shadow chaser, which are some sci-fi movies that I think I have monolith here, but I never had a chance to watch it. And the shadow chaser titles I've always seen at the video store. I don't remember if I ever rented them or not like those kind of sci-fi action movies and stuff like that. There's a lot of those in the eighties and nineties, late eighties, early nineties. So it opens up and it's an effective scene. And I was like, well, it's pretty, pretty impressive for what this is. Um, I guess for what it is, I didn't really know what it was going to be exactly. Cause I, I actually did not ever see this one. And, I, and I'm looking at my VHSs, and it was one of the titles is like, did I have this? And I did not, I did. I had a bootleg of it. So, um, as it, this is the first time watch. So as it progresses, we basically have these detectives that come into the scene and one it's in Britain, but there is an American who transferred there. So, uh, he's, he's talking to everything and, and almost immediately he starts a conversation. Like they go check out and, uh, talk to the uh, surviving victim and he starts to talk to her mother and learns a lot about her. And they, they kind of like hook up a date. I was like very plot convenience, but Hey, I, I mean to move it along, I don't really care that much, but what, what really, the movie is like really terribly paced. And I think that's like what everybody said. And I actually turned and checked out some of the commentary and they said, the first thing people say about this. And I, I agree completely is that it, the opening's crazy and uh, really well done. And the rest of the movie is very slowly paced. And I was like, I mean, that's all I had to say really about it, to be honest. But I guess I'll get into some more details about the film. So there's this priest going around uh, killing people, but he has a main focus on the surviving woman and her child. So the cop obviously has an interest. and They start dating on the American cop, and he's always like trying to save her from the killer. The killer is also going around and killing other people. All the kills are off screen. Almost all the kills are off screen. All the violence is off screen. So like this movie being advertised possibly as a slasher, I feel like people would call it a slasher, but it's more of a police procedural. And I know that giallos can be a police procedural and be more of a slasher. They kind of, but they have their own, you know, tropes and stuff and techniques that make them a giallo. Like when you just turn like a slasher into almost a straight police procedural, it really doesn't feel like much of a slasher because the characters getting killed are either cops or complete unknowns that just walk on a, a scene and they're slashed. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of weird. So, um, the dialogue between the cops is really painful really painful and it, it, it the dialogue's not very well written i guess this the, the script was 30 pages long so that kind of explains it maybe these guys are improving on the set but the british cops always busting the americans balls because they don't like them they're like hey i'll bet you're on the take and it's just like who is writing this like i know that they probably saw serpico and it's just like it's just like you shut up like it's that it's just like nothing there's no good dialogue. It's just really weird. And there's a couple of plot conveniences too that I really don't mind, but just really dumb things like they know the killer is stalking them nonstop, but the cop is supposed to keep them at home, but he's like, let's go out. Let's go out instead. So they go to the movie theater and it's like, that's a bad choice. It's a dark place. No, you can't see everybody in there, but okay, let's buy it. Do you sit in the back corner so nobody can sneak up on, behind you? No, you sit right in the middle front row. So anybody can get behind you, anybody get in front of you. It's just like, this guy's not a very good cop. I mean, there's probably a reason he left America um, and went somewhere else to be a cop. But it, at the same time, you're just like, whatever. Um, towards the ending, it does kind of pick up and we start to get some body count. Um, but the weird thing is, like, this, you think this movie's pacing. You're like, it's got to be an hour and 45. No, it's like an hour and 32. So the the, the time, run time isn't that bad. And, and I think some people may get, like, kind of a kick out of it because it is maybe unintentionally funny in the dialogue with the police officers and everything like that. But um, I do ap appreciate the ending was 
was creepy. Even though I'm like, what? Uh, maybe I missed something? I don't know. And the ending's creepy and it's plastered all over the front VHS cover. Of course it is because there's only that's the only scene in there like it. Um, but the idea itself that a, a killer priest, demonic killer priest killing children is scary, you know? Um, it is. Uh, so, yeah. And I just realized I forgot to give recommendations for all the other movies I talked about already. So I guess I'll go back and put little clips on there, just uh, the title clips. But um, yeah, I don't really like this movie. I, I found it kind of dull. I thought the acting was kind of lackluster and weird and the writing wasn't particularly great. I thought the concept was decent. Um, yeah, I just, it, it's a little inept too for me and, and for how slow it is. I mean, there shouldn't be no ineptness for how slow it feels. It should, everything should be explained to a T and I don't need everything explained, but I shouldn't be asking questions like you shot the guy out the window. Did you ever check if his body was laying there? Or you just cut to the next scene. It's just strange. I, I don't remember ever showing that scene or that, that moment. Um, and the cops are all cartoons and weird and the chief to me looks kind of like Stephen thrower uh, a little bit but maybe mixed with like skinny orson wells but he's just um he like yells at the the cop he's like don't lose your temper and it's just like aren't you losing your temper aren't you losing i mean but that's a that's a cop trope right the chief's always mad he's always mad um uh there is like i said a commentary on here by actual fans of the movie which is nice because you don't want to get a commentary of people that don't like the movie what the hell's the point of that and they seem to know a lot about it so that's cool um and it does have a cool slip cover so if it's up your alley it is a movie that i had to get anyways because i had the bootleg so it's just like yeah you got to get it or it's got to get off your checklist it was always one that people would like not on dvd horror movies and it's from 87 so yeah um good night god bless um and, and you could easily make a lot of dumb jokes like at least the movie was polite enough to wish me a good night's sleep good night god bless uh because it put me to sleep yeah all that kind of stupid shit but i know there's got to be fans of this movie and um it is guess i guess an interesting point for a kind of independent director's first movie but uh it didn't do much for me so yeah Oh, if I got to pick one to go with it, I'm going to pick another kind of low budget uh, stuck on VHS uh, movie called Judgment Day. I think probably around the same time, maybe late 80s, early 90s, Judgment Day. I thought that one was kind of interesting, had some cool things to it. So, yeah. Okay, this next one is from 2016, and this is actually uh, Under the Shadow. This director did Wounds, which came out a couple years ago, which... I couldn't stand Wounds. I thought Wounds was awful. But Under the Shadow interested me a lot more. It sounded like it'd be more up my alley. And it definitely was. It was a very good movie. Um, so it takes place in Iran um, during an Iraq-Iran conflict where the countries are bombing each other. Um, we have this uh, this this woman who's married, has a kid, and she basically wants to go back and um, get her doctorate. But this country is very, you know, chauvinistic, very male-centric, very uh, unfair and everything like that. So uh, she's basically going back for it, but she's denied because something she did when she was very young. Her husband is a doctor, but um, so there's just like turmoil between them, of course. So basically what happens is the, the husband is sent to a frontline area to help where it leaves them kind of abandoned and shit is about to hit the fan. They're targeting their city. The other country's targeting their city with bombs. So uh, people start to leave the, the, the apartment that they, they live in. They're leaving and the town's becoming more, uh, you know, deserted. So, but there's something else going on too. There's a supernatural aspect of the whole entire thing. A young boy had recently moved into the apartment because he lost his family and he somehow brought back 
this kind of strange gin with him. And a gin in this, um, you know, it's, it's a genie, but it's a little bit different in a lot of mythologies, I believe. So in this one, it kind of feels like more of a ghost or more of a haunting, but it has an element, uh, some cool, you know, unique things in itself. Um, the location for the movie is great. It's terrifying. Um, I was catching myself being very angry for the uh, lead female in here, how she's treated and, oh, you know, the, the kind of society and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, and, and with the buildings being blown to pieces, there's lots of good set set designs and stuff. And, and the movie, I think, did catch me catch me to jump a couple times. But it's basically a woman by herself uh, in this building trying to protect her daughter while her daughter is possibly starting to, you know, get very sick and hallucinate this ghost. But we all know better, right? It is a horror movie. Anyways, I thought it was a very interesting movie, a, a very interesting look at another country's uh, lifestyle at, the, at a certain time and everything like that. Um, just the small little details are really cool, how basically they can't watch VHS or it's contraband, so you can't have, like, she always works out to the Jane Fonda videotape and stuff which I thought was really funny but uh, she can't even have that so it's just like it's just an awful existence to be honest but I, I thought it was a really solid movie that really works well mixing the two you know real life uh, grounded real life horrors with you know possible supernatural horror so it's a good one under the shadow check it out Okay, this is obviously my favorite movie of the week, um, and this is a Patreon pick, and it's by Jim Simon, and he picked The Pit. Uh, what's it? Jamie wouldn't kill anyone unless Teddy told him to. Uh, yeah, this is based off a book. It's a Canucksploitation movie, Canadian exploitation film. Um, I guess it's nothing like the book, um, so that's very crazy. This is a super bizarre movie. I always had a, a love for it ever since the Anchor Bay DVD came out. I saw it fair, right when it came out. and I, I always thought it was super bizarre and weird and just not right, but it had such a weird bizarreness to it that I always loved. So this is 1981 film. Um, and it basically follows the character of Jamie. Um, who is a really bizarre kid. He's way too old to be acting the way he does. He carry, His only friend is Teddy. A teddy bear that he talks to. That talks back to him. Um, and there's this really weird moment halfway. About 30-40 minutes into the movie. Where you're like Teddy's in his head. Teddy's not real. There's no way. It's his, you know, his subconscious or whatever. And then the babysitter that is hired because basically the plot of this movie is his parents are leaving and they need to hire a babysitter to stay with him for a few days or a few weeks or something along those lines and he is a creepy perverse kid where a lot of the babysitters quit etc etc but he always talks to his teddy bear and one day the babysitter's cleaning the room and sets the teddy bear makes the bed and moves the teddy bear and sets him back and jamie's nowhere in sight jamie's nowhere around but nobody else is in the room too She's not, the teddy bear moves its head and looks directly at the camera. You're like, so am I to understand this scare was for us? This scare is real. Jamie's not seeing it himself. So Teddy has to be real, which is not part of the book, which is just like, what in the hell are you doing? And I didn't even get to the main plot of this film. Basically what happens is Jamie finds this pit in the ground in the middle of the woods with, with troglodytes in them. The missing link. They're basically these small kind of cave dwelling things. Think from the time machine, right? And um, yeah, he starts to kind of talk to them because he has no friends. Um, he is uh, a, like doing weird, perverse things, like doing these elaborate pranks to get a librarian nude so he could take pictures of her. Uh, has run-ins with his uh, babysitter's boyfriend, um, an old lady down the street, uh, a rude little girl, and he just does not get along with anyone. He's a miserable kid. He has this obsession with the babysitter. 
Um, and it's just really unpleasant in a lot of weird ways, but also goofy and insane in a lot of weird ways. And I absolutely love it, but it doesn't take long for just looking at the cover. You pretty much know exactly what's going to happen. Um, they don't eat chocolate bars. Um, it's a great line. I love it. Um, and the end, I've always adored the end of this movie. I thought it was great. And it's just such a weird, just desserts kind of thing. Um, it's just a, a crazy movie where it keeps getting weirder and weirder and you don't expect it to go to the place it does. We're like, oh, it's just a tea seeing the, um, troglodytes in the pit. Nothing's really going to happen with them. Right. Uh, and then after a certain point, you're like, oh, okay. Well, I expected maybe that. But then after, after the end, the climax, you're like, oh boy, who really saw that coming? Um, it just has a really weird charm to it too I, I really recommend checking out the pit there's some special features on here which i liked uh interview with the lead actor um and he talks about the movie and everything like that there's an interview with i think the guy who wrote the book and he's like they told me they made a piece of shit at least they were honest with it and uh, i think there's some another interview on here too um yeah there's an audio commentary with film historian jason uh pikulski um and there's an interview with star Jeannie Elias. And I watched all this stuff, the the composer and stuff, and I don't remember every single detail. I do remember the screenwriter popped out and the, the lead actor popped out. But anyways, I, I really love this one. It's one of my favorite movies from 81. It's just bizarre, strange, and yet kind of goofy, but also just sleazy in an uncomfortable kind of way. So it's The Pit. I thought Kino did a great job with the, the print. It looked really good. Fortunately, no subtitles. That's my only knock on the release. Um, since I I've been screwing up and not recommending a movie with this whole video. I knew I'd forget. I knew I'd forget right away. Maybe I'll put some cue cards or a little title up here. Goes good with or something like that. So anyways, The Pit, check it out. They eat meat. They don't eat chocolate bars, right? All right, we're here for Blind Spot. This is my pick. We had to do two picks in a row because I screwed up because I don't know what's going on anymore with my life. But this is The Innocence from 1961, directed by, is it, is it, uh, geez, Jack Clayton? I can't mistake his name. I want to say Jack Taylor, but I, I know him because he directed one of my favorite movies from the 80s that I used to watch all the time as a kid called Something Wicked This Way Comes. And they're both, this and that are classy, but classy in completely different ways. Yeah, like, if you told me they're the same director, I'm like, no, they're not. That's bullshit. <laughs> like, I literally, I was surprised. Every time I see it, I'm surprised. But like I said, The Innocence was directed in 1961. It's based off the Harry James story, uh, Turn of the Screw, which has been adapted 367,000 times. Um, the cinematographer is Freddie Francis from all the Hammer films and The Elephant Man. And he, Cape Fear, the remake. And he directed a slew of good movies too, including um, Doctor and the Devils. And I... I think he was the one that actually directed Tales from the Crypt um, from 72, which I, I absolutely love. So, okay, um, I, I've always wanted to see this movie. I've always heard great things about it. And I felt like I knew the end. I felt like it was spoiled. But apparently, um, there's a lot of different adaptations of this, and they are all a bit different. So, um, <laughs> it, it, it's definitely kind of like a psychological uh, film, a ghost story, uh, a gothic story. Yeah. Uh, the plot is we have this, um, I don't even know how she's contacted, but she seems to be kind of a, a lady who's out on her luck and she's offered a job to watch these two children to be a, what, a governess of this, this basically yeah. this beautiful mansion on this location, like this, it's big acres and they have everything you could ever want. And she's supposed to watch this young child, um, kind of teach her, be motherly to her because their parents had passed away and the uncle wants absolutely nothing to do with them. He wants to go into town and get down and live his life. It's like a playboy. It's a like playboy. Yeah. 1890. Yeah. So basically what happens is the young boy is off to school 
he is basically expelled from school and sent home. So she has to take care of these two children who she believes, starts to believe, are manipulative. And she starts to uncover some dark truths about what happened to previous governors and housekeepers and all that kind of stuff. And you start to question what is really happening. Is there a haunting? Is there something insane? Is somebody lying? And that's pretty much it. Right. Um, she ha- She has this big, you know, like worry that like like the children would become like corrupt or like somehow tainted um and you find out that there was kind of like a i don't know if you would say murder suicide or just there are two deaths of a couple um in in the mansion and it's kind of like everybody kept that information hidden from the children um to help you know, prevent them from... But they know. These but, children yeah, know they, a lot they, more than they, they know. And and the governess, you know, starts to believe that, like, like the, the spirit of these two lovers have, like, somehow possessed the children. And... Which is an idea they use in a lot of films now. Like, the reincarnation oh, yeah. of someone being within someone. Mm-hmm. Well, they have the Japanese ghost story, which is a bit different than... Um, what, geez, Skeleton Key and even... Uh, spoiler... I probably shouldn't name any more of the newer movies that do it, huh? I mean, I think it, it is showing up a lot in newer movies. I, I don't want to spoil any, but there's right. a handful of newer films, arty horror films, that kind of have that reincarnation. But it's always kind of been done where you want the body, you know? Right. But, you know, in, in this one, it's it's different because it's like the, the few remaining, like, housekeepers that are there in the manor are, like, the, the, the governess is, like, trying to, like, wanting the children to, like, confess, like, this is the case, that they're being possessed, and and the governor, the uh, main housemaid lady is like, uh, I, I, I think you're kind of wrong. She's, like, I starting, mean, yeah, she's starting to slip, and she has these faces, like, you're pointing out, like, do you see her face right there, where right. she's just like, <gasps> when you're like, hmm. she's the, not right, like, you know she's not right. Right, the main character, she, she is a fantastic actress, but she expresses so much in her faces, like, at the tail end of each scenes, like, especially when, she, like, she goes from, like, horrified to, like, reluctant smiling or laughing. Like, just as the scene fades, it's very subtle and very quick. And if you're, like, not paying attention, like, you, you know, you see it. Like, this woman is, like, quickly losing her grip on reality. And and the, the ending is so open-ended that you don't really know. I, I love the backhanded compliment the little boy gives her right when they meet. He's like... You're far too pretty to be a governess. <laughs> and, you know, like, and she gets mad at first. But right. then she covers it. Like, oh. She's like, well, she says something kind of like half rude response. And then she laughs it off and plays it. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, she's she's not right. Um, there's also the best part of the movie besides, you know, the, uh, the cinematography. Oh, yeah. Cinematography it's it's probably the best. I mean, like, I know that uh, Freddie Francis is a world renowned. He's like such a good cinematographer. But, like, you start directing movies now. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, the black and white cinematography, um, there's lots of, like, one takes, like, one shots that are just perfect falling around the house. And it's just like, oh, this is just spectacular. And the, and the way uh, Criterion fixed it up probably helps with it, too. But I don't know. It's also a super awesome, beautiful location. It's vast. It's creepy. Um, it's really lovely, but also not homely. It's very hollow. Well, it's... It's too in, big to be homely. Well, that's the thing. They're... they're in, in the opening... Opening parts of the movie, like, everything's out in the open. It's a country manor. We have, like, like the sweeping landscape. Everything's well lit. It's daytime. And as the movie goes on, 
like they're inside more and it's darker and like the camera's more zoomed in on the character so you don't see like it's like it's like almost like like the world is like collapsing yeah. in on them. Claustrophobia, um, claustrophobia, paranoia. Um, the 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 governess she confronts the children, you know, each one on one to have them kind of like confess, you know, like 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 are you possessed by you know who, whichever one you're possessed by, you know, and there's this like theme of like water, um, with each of the confrontations, like when she comes Friends yeah. of the little girl, it's like downpouring at, at a outside in the garden, and then when she confesses the the little boy, it's they're in a greenhouse, and there's just like steam all up on the windows, and they're just like perspiring nonstop. Well, that also um, it's it's one of those story, movies where you're like, did she learn about that person before she saw what she saw? Or right. she thought she saw, like, did she see something that gave her the idea that that's what happened, so therefore then she imagined it? Or is it actually a haunting? It's very, very much open-ended in that way. And, like, I thought that this one kind of veered from the original story. And I, I never read the original story. Sorry. <laughs> I should have. <laughs> I mean, I probably will eventually. But I, I saw, I, I just went and skimmed the outline, and I was like, no, unless I was skimming the film outline. But I'm pretty no, sure right. I skimmed the, skimmed the outline, and it was very close to the, the movie. The first movie, and I always thought that there was different twists. Like the kids were been dead the whole time. I thought that literally was the twist. I, I thought, thought that were, would. Be I thought they're both dead. Yeah, I thought. I thought that maybe the boy killed the girl, or the girl also seemed to have some sort of like psychic powers or like affinity to nature. I still think the boy might have killed the guy on the stairs or the woman. Right. I think. Well, I think he might have killed the guy on the stairs by accident. But the boy is clearly a psychopath. Um, he, that boy ain't right. Right. You're like, like he, he comes close to stringing the governess while playing. He attacks his sister a lot. He was expelled for school for being. But I, also, you could play that off as just a, a bored, neglected kid. Yeah, it, it's hard to say. Um, you know, the movie is really open ending, and it, it does end in on kind of a shock to where like I'm not quite sure what happened. If that makes sense. Yeah, it was obviously not good, though. <laughs> right, yeah. No, no matter what, it wasn't good, but I, I just don't know what happened to who, um, if that makes sense. I don't want to give away the ending, because I really think you should watch I'm it. I'm sure a lot of people, most people have seen it. It's just like, this is a blind spot for a reason. It's, it's picking movies that we should have seen long right. ago. So, I, actually, this has been probably one of the most rewarding things we did so far. Yeah. All the movies that we watched at least were worth watching, except when you picked... Forbidden, which one is it? Forbidden World, not not no, the one with Leslie Nielsen. Forbidden Planet, the Corman one. I've seen that before, so I had to rewatch it. I was like, this does not belong on Blind Spot. Wait, Forbidden Planet? No, Forbidden World. Yeah, Forbidden World. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, Anne Francis is in Forbidden yeah, Planet. That's, that's, that's a Nielsen. masterpiece. That's a good one. Um, yeah, maybe yeah, Leslie Forbidden Nielsen World. was in that one, right? Yeah, yeah, because he was the main love interest. Yeah. He's the main character. So here we go. Uh, it's not in uh, Tear on Tape. It is yeah. probably going to be in John Stanley's Creature Features. It is. I'm okay. it. So we have The Innocence. Uh, five out of five. 1961. Superior cinematic version of Henry James, The Turn of the Screw. Produced, directed, and unbearable tension by Jack Clayton. Scripted by Truman Capote and William Archibald. With insight in capturing the decay, depravity, and haunted possession which reek in the novel. Deborah Cure is a prim governess dispatched to a country mansion to tend the children of ice-cold Baron Michael Redgrave. Beneath the serenade exterior, 
serene exterior, sorry guys, and undercurrents of menace, menace are the children possessed by a former governess and the valet who were sadistic lovers before their deaths, or is it all incurs imagination? Much of the horror is only suggested. One of the best ghost movies ever made. Martin Stevens, Pamela Franklin. Um, five out of five. I mean, it is probably the best shot movie we've seen. I would probably give it a five out of five, honestly. Yeah. I really liked it. I have to do it again. Um, I would watch it again. And I definitely, it's a shame. I'm looking at Jack Clayton's movies. He has a handful. But, like, I wonder if he probably was into something, like, producing or writing or something. But, I mean, Something Wicked This Way Comes is very special. And very different. Very different. Not even in the same world. Yeah, yeah no, that, they are completely different movies. Yeah, it's bizarre. That's kind of like when you think of Jack Bender, who directed Child's Play 3, and you're like, oh, what? I mean, they're not. You guys understand what I'm saying here. And then he also directed A Midnight Hour. It's like, yes, you can see it, but you can't. They yeah, don't feel anything alike. They feel mm-hmm. like two different worlds. Um, but anyways, I, I really like this one. I'll, I'll, I'll give it 8.5 out of 10. First time view. Really? Subjecti- objectively, it's a it's five out of five. But I'm just first time. I, I have so much trouble giving a movie a perfect rating, five out of five. I, I think like I gave Cool Hand Luke perfect and Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia perfect and Bring Me the Head of Alfredo and basically five. nothing else. <laughs> yeah, I, I could easily give this one a five star. Um, yeah. yeah, I think it's shot beautifully. I think that it's it's open ended, but not like we didn't think the script thoroughly on Like it's not like it's has loose ends because they didn't think of how to tie in loose ends. I think it's it's open ended for a reason yeah. and not so much to like our kind of lazy. We sloppy. Didn't, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's not perfect. a sloppy movie. It is a tight, well written movie. Fantastically acted. Looks beautiful. The score is amazing. Rada, stop it. Um, I, I I think it's perfect, and that's why I don't want to talk too much yeah. about the ending because it if by chance you haven't seen it, it's definitely worth watching it is in black and white so don't bring that up <laughs> if people don't like watching black and white movies burn out your eyes right um i actually <laughs> i prefer black and white movies like i mean more, especially when the, the cinematography is by freddie francis and right. looks that good but um you know what movie i think might be interesting for you to watch is mm. the others have you seen the others um i think the others is pretty much a remake of this movie in a lot of ways didn't they remake the others I think they were planned. Maybe they did, but I don't know. I feel like the remake shares, I mean, the others in general shares a lot of similarities to The Innocence or Turn of the Screw. What's the one where they're wearing, like, little stupid masks and they're at a house outside and we're like, eh, they're going to get you? The Strangers? Yeah, maybe I've seen The Strangers. Why would I recommend The Strangers when... I don't uh, know what The Others is. I just... The Others is a ghost story (laughs) with Nicole Kidman. Nicole Kidman. Yeah. But I am your daughter. Do you remember that? I vaguely... Is that like early 2000s? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. 2001 or something like that. To one or two, I don't remember which. I vaguely remember watching it, but um, I'd never watch this one again. Yeah, probably me too. Yeah. But next week is your pick. It's your final pick. It is the classic George Romero movie, Martin, which I was like, you gotta see Martin, because I haven't seen Martin forever. I, Martin's a great movie. Romero's my favorite director, and you love Romero too. Mm-hmm. Is he your favorite horror director? No. Del, Del Toro. Okay. Even though Pan's Labyrinth's not that scary. Yeah, shut up. That's the <laughs> We won't uh, go into that's it. That's an inside joke. <laughs> but George Romero's the best. I mean, sorry. Um, that's weird that you're just some objectively wrong about your opinion like that. Del Toro's the far <laughs> right, guys, director. Guys, I, I Romero or Del Toro? Yeah, that's, that's your Del question Toro. for next week. No, Romero, no, Del Toro. But this is a bonus one. Romero, <coughs> Del Toro. Who speaks to you more? 
A oh, dead who man? speaks to me more? Yeah, or a Spanish man. Aren't they both technically Spanish? Romero's Lithuanian and I think Mexican. And Del Toro's just uh, Mexican? I think Del Toro's Spanish. Is he Spanish? But he makes movies in Mexico, right? I thought that he was... He actually is Mexican, but he but made he a lot of his movies in Spain. 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 Yeah. yeah, It's kind of strange that way. Yeah, he actually is Mexican. So, uh, yeah. Um... Next week, Martin, and then after that is the final movie, Thirst, by Park Chan-wook. And then we'll explain to you guys what we are planning on doing. We'll have to have some sort of end show, but it's going to be very difficult. We can't, like, rank them like we did the Hammer movies, because it's, like, I can't put the 26 movies that you have, you know what I mean, that you pick for your blind spot. I got a system of how we can do this. You got no system. Yeah. Your Um, system's not going to make any sense. My systems won't make sense. You just won't comprehend it. Because you are incapable of comprehending it. Also, so our last two movies, vampire movies. Yep. Because third sounds like a vampire movie. It is. And, oh, and I, I know this is a big boy. This is Claude. Yeah, this this is my my brother right here. Brother. We need don't we need a feline representation? <laughs> if I could say it. <laughs> Get out of here, brother. All right, so we're done. All right, bye. Okay, guys. Uh, getting to these questions, answers, and comments. Ben Grimm. Uh, White Noise reminds me of the old sighting show on Fox about a guy seeing his deceased kid in a TV static. Gave me the creeps back then. I love those old, like, anthology shows. Uh, there was one called Night Terrors, too. We Everybody remembers, like, the big ones, but I, some of the smaller ones I remember seeing shows, but can't remember every one of them. Ken Coakley, the, this is regarding Carnival of Souls. I worked at West Coast Video from 1997 to 99. Uh, we had great old horror movies as a recent manager was a horror fan. Sometimes I would play Carnival of Souls. Customers would tell me that the music alone was giving them the creeps. The manager told them told me that the customers had complained because the music was really creeping them out <laughs> uh, i kid reincarnation is a great horror movie one of my my uh one of my favorite japanese films mandy cage i also saw night of the living dead around the same age too so same age too young it's my favorite of the series good shit i love night of the living dead dr snuff i completely agree with you what you said about cursed it's not as bad as people say it is i love the part in the end where the werewolf flips the middle finger it Gets a laugh from me, too. Ken Coakley, I would like to hear a commentary on a lot of the movies. Because question of the week, I asked, what movie would you like to hear me do a commentary on? Ken Coakley, I would love to hear a commentary on movies such as George Romero's Dead Trilogy. We did Dawn and Day, uh, Hell of the Living Dead, uh, The Beyond, House by the Cemetery. Love to do those. David Luton, awesome videos, always. Brilliant blind spot this week. Really enjoyed your guys' takes on cat people. Travis Wright, Curse sounds awesome. A commentary with Jeremy on Rocky Horror would probably be a lot of fun. Coco Loco, I'd love to hear a commentary on a really wild movie you haven't seen yourself yet. Either something absolutely terrible or something that knocks you out with a twist. I can recommend Real by Slasher Victim 666. Either way. Would love to hear your opinion on it. Free and legal on Vimeo. Thank you. Uh, David Leather, another great shoe. <laughs> How about Bride of Frank commentary? Question mark. Thank you. Peek and Boo. Oh, this is very long, but I'm going to read it anyways because we don't have that much. Okay, so... Um, Peekaboo. Hey, I have seen that guy in Beach Babes from Outer, from Beyond in another movie. He was in I Want to Play Games starring Lisa Boyle. The 90s had some really great looking babes in their softcore erotic thriller films. Sad to hear that the audio on Naked Girl Murdered in the Park has such bad sound. Almost my death myself. Hope your hearing is better now. I remember you spoke about having or suspected you had tinnitus a while back. No, I still have it in the left ear, but uh, I deal with it. Glad you liked Reincarnation. There's a hidden symbolism there with the red shoes. It's a popular story in a way in Japanese horror. The story comes from a nursery rhyme from 1922 where a mother loses her young daughter. The daughter had red shoes on at the moment. So the mother cries every time she sees red shoes. It's based on a real life event. Um, 
Aizwaspiki Kimi, a young orphan girl from uh, Fushimi, who was given up for adoption due to hardships. Then they have uh, added ogre, a troll-like kind of being, into stories. And since the most popular color for an ogre is red, you have a story about ogres kidnapping or haunting young children. There's a South Korean horror film from 2005 called Red Shoes that, although I haven't seen it, deals more on the Red Shoes story that I tried to explain. Yeah, I, I have that movie. I've not had a chance to watch it. Um, there is a two-part TV movie who becomes so popular that he made it to full-length movie and sequels. And even did the U.S. Oh, sorry. That's uh, missed the wrong line. I need to rewatch Reincarnation since it's been years, and you should try to watch The Grudge. It originally was a two-part TV movie who beca- became so popular that... He, it was made in a full-length movie and sequels, and even did the U.S. remakes. Question of the week. Young Guns would be interesting. Great update as always. Be safe. By the way, if you're going by the original story by H.P. Lovecraft, Cthulhu had been sleeping for eons. Don't know how long that is, and you suddenly awakened by some men on a boat. Anyone would be a bit grumpy. Poor Octoman never had a chance. Gojira is original building uh, hugger. A loose reference to tree huggers. Uh, three huggers, but he said tree. Or three. I think it's supposed to be tree. Don't blame him for the poor construction since he only wanted to hug the buildings. Gojira may be offended and that is not a good idea. Love the Cannibal Holocaust segment your answer section. I for one burst out laughing. Sorry for the long text. That's alright. Nick Mua. I think I enjoy any film you chose to do a commentary for, Dave. For all your film knowledge alone, if I had to pick something I'd going with Escape from L.A. John Carpenter at his worst, I know, but I bet it's still better than other so-called directors at their best. I don't know if you love or hate the, this film, but hearing your thoughts either way, you'd be interesting. Also, the 2014 Belgium slasher Cub. It homages a few U.S. slashers for sure. I'd love to hear you discuss that at length. What works and what doesn't. The Carpenter S score, the lighting. Questions. I read 1984 some time ago. Do you feel that we are increasingly living in a Big Brother-controlled society? I think that a lot of people worry about it while they pick up their cell phones and tell everybody where they're at anyway. So, hey, it's something I can't do anything about, right? I'm not going to worry about it. I can't. Uh, but, I mean, yeah, I mean, the Internet. In fact, we're doing it to ourselves. I mean, uh, we're constantly getting bombarded with ads and stuff like that. And that's the funny thing is everything. They're going to steal our identity. They're going to know what we're doing. And it's like they're just using it just to sell us crap. <laughs> that's basically the, that's the, the, the bottom dollar. The bottom line is that they want your money. Um, what are some of your favorite tyrannical government movies? Off the top of my head, we'll go zero population growth, I think, is interesting enough. And... Um, yeah, that, that's the one that comes to my mind that I watched recently. And THX. Let's go THX is really good. Um, um, have you seen the movie, the zombie movie, The Girl with All the Gifts? If so, your thoughts on it? I actually covered that one. I enjoy it. I think it's a pretty good movie. Love Paddy Constantine. Good good take. Uh, different take on the zombie genre. Acoop 37. Forget all about Cursed. May have to revisit it. Isamisio. You should do a commentary for The Visible Man 2020. Kidding, of course, but that would be funny. Listen, just straight up verbal annihilation for two hours. I don't hate the movie that bad. I think it's a good movie. I just don't like it. White Noise I really wasn't a fan of. Agree Dead Silence is a good one film that got steamrolled by Saw and all those other films. Cat People is an odd one. I have seen re- I haven't seen reincarnate I have seen reincarnation, but I don't remember it much. Probably do for a revisit. I'm curious about the reckoning. Strange it had such a quiet release. Guess it probably isn't that good. Nice update as always. Thank you. Travis Lipscomb. Mood struck his share in Nick Cage. Might sound bad, but I swear it's a great movie. It has a criterion. I, I knew that mistake right when I made it, when I said it. Oh, I kind of editing. I was like, duh. Uh, 81 Oak Ridge saw three is the goriest mainly because the director is trying to top hostile which was never accomplished I'm more of a fan of the first two hostile movies than any of the saw sequels Darren Lynn Bowsman did a direct, directed the Mother's Day remake which I thought was pretty solid I thought it was well directed but poorly written it's it's I always felt that movie was like to tell you it's like human society is trash humans are horrible 
that watch every human act like an alien and not act anything human. So it's just like, yeah, humans can suck, but why don't you portray humans as humans and not aliens? Um, Slipknot Boy 555, uh, he, he, he marks the timestamp for when I got Cladiston. Uh, there it is. I'm not saying it anymore. Uh, right the first time. And then he, he timestamps when I screw up representation. <laughs> Salvador Funkenstein, uh, Return of the Living Dead, Rave to the Grave. Kidding, but I don't know. Something Fun and Ridiculous, Nightmare City, Cannibal Apocalypse, Burial Ground. Uh, Dustin Mills or anyone you've been dying to do something with again. That would be awesome. Keith uh, Boyd Jr., Robocop, Jeremy R. Ironically, I know because originally Keith misspelled uh, Robocop, but he put like Rocopco and, or Rococo, and it was funny. Jeremy commented, ironically enough, I could talk for hours on the Rococo movement. Uh, Peter England, your favorite movie, of course, Day of the Dead, Return of the Dead, Cannibal Holocaust. Uh, Addison Heath, Chocolate, Strawberry, Vanilla. Tony, Mr. Tony the Dead agrees. Kelly Casson, uh, Countryman. How about revenge movie? It would be nice to have a guest that did have any kind of real life experience based in a movie. At least I did, and I have some friends that have too. That would be interesting. Um, Neil Lemoy, hashtag Ban Merriman. I will. If you make the movie Ban Merriman, I will do a commentary on it. Ron Munster, Young Guns, please. Skip Barber, a segment of what makes for a bad movie, setting elements for truly horrible movies. Uh, I think this is an old answer. Um, but basically, uh, yeah, I, I would want to do that because I hate focusing on negative. Like, if I don't like a movie, I try to get it over and done with. I do rant sometimes. That's why I try to avoid any negatives because you sound like an asshole. Skip Barber, uh, he basically also mentions uh, he wanted me to do maybe something about a segment on FX practical effects and not CG. This is an old answer. I would, but I would be worried about fighting the clips and the algorithm on YouTube. I can, I can try to do something like that. Justin Patrick, Ghoulies Go to University. Okay, Sam Edwards just uh, answers Ghoulies Do Dallas. Uh, Joe Kim Johannesson, Texas Chainsaw 2. Dave uh, Luton, the Rocky Horror Picture Shore for Jeremy to guest is obvious reasons. And Chud 2 for Dave to really get stuck into. I would just sing along the whole time. I'd be like, I'm a walking. Uh, Daniel Rice, are you talking about your channel or commentary with Jeremy or 22 Shots? Either one, I would love to hear about your thoughts on particular Asian fantasy films. I absolutely adore them. They are so weird and bonkers. He says the Monkey King films and the Legend of uh, Nega Pearls. So I guess the question of the week, since we covered the pit this week, I want to know your favorite Canucksploitation movie. What is it? Is it, uh, I, I mean, the pit's probably my favorite, but there's a lot of them. Does Cronenberg count as Canucksploitation in the beginning? I think early it does. Maybe My Bloody Valentine. Let's hear them. There's lots of William Fruit. He did a bunch of movies too. So there's a lot of them. So look it up. Also, if you want to stick around, um, basically we're going to hop into the update, but stick around for the Jay Wolfel interview. It's an hour and like 27 minutes. I interviewed Jay Wolfel. We kind of bullshit. He uh, talks about the new release of Beyond Dreams Door coming out. And uh, he talks about the film Beyond Dreams Door, some other things, Ghost Lake. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a director. He did a bunch of movies. He directed The Things from 1993, Beyond Dreams Door. Um, he's still working in film. He's done a bunch of stuff. Uh, it's a pretty cool interview. Hopefully it turned out all right. We did it on Zoom. So the timing sometimes is messed up. Sound is not the best, but I think it's decent. I think it's, it's listenable for sure. Um, let me know what you think, and that will be popping up at the very end of the video. But for now, let's hop into the update. Okay, this is going to be a fairly quick update. First up is 29 Needles, too extreme for the mainstream on Earth films. Um, this movie sounded insane, and I'm actually, for a first time in a long time, a little apprehensive about watching it. But yeah, it's supposed to be really crazy. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure what I'm getting myself into. It came with the poster. Not going to open up the poster because it looks just like the... I guess I am opening it up, all right? It looks just like the uh, case. So then we also have 
Himitsu, which is a Scion Sono movie. Um, it's out of print, I think. It was kind of expensive, but I was worried about not being able to get it. Um, I know that UK had a release that was uh, out of stock at the time when I went to order from Arrow. But yeah, this is uh, from Ala Films. I like his movies. It's one I did not have. So, And last, of course, The Dungeon of Andy Milligan with all these movies on here. It says including, but there's a lot more. So yeah, from Severin. This is a pretty heavy box. You can hear that. I know people like to hear that. That's like going to be a new internet thing of people just knocking on hard box case for DVDs and Blu-rays and stuff. Yeah, so it's got a bunch of movies on here. You know, I'm not really familiar with Andy Milligan. I have bought some of his movies, but super happy to have this nice, awesome box set. Very cool. Going to sit next to the Christopher Lee set when it shows up. And, of course, the Al Adamson one. So, uh, yeah, back to the video. Sorry for the short update. Uh, yeah, but it is what it is. Can't buy everything all the time. All right, guys, thank you very much for watching. And as always, have a good one. So I'm Mr. Parker, and I'm here with Jay Wolfel. We're going to talk a little bit about some of his movies, some of his uh, inspirations and all that kind of jazz, and just let the conversation take us wherever it goes, right? hope so. <laughs> uh, I am Jay Wolfel. I'm the writer, director, composer, occasional editor, depending on which uh, credit of mine you look up. But uh, I'm, I'm a filmmaker type. How's that? Yeah, that's good because a lot of those people are just strictly directors or writers but the filmmaker title i would say is for somebody like a, a george romero that does his own editing and all that kind of stuff i mean yeah romero of course came from pennsylvania i came from ohio originally uh i don't know if it's as true today as it was back then but back then if you wanted to make movies and you weren't in los angeles you had to pretty much do it all yourself you could get some friends who would help you out but so you end up learning how to do a little bit of everything if you want to do anything, because there's no, you know, it's 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 a hobby, if even that, you know. So that's, I learned all that stuff because that was the only way I could make films. It's not that I think I should do them all at once. Yeah. I do think it's a good idea if you know all those things, because when you're making a movie with other people, which is most of the time, um, you need to understand what it's like to walk in their shoes you know, how to talk to them. Hopefully you can communicate better with somebody who's edited because you've edited, you know, that kind of thing. So it's a value that way. I don't think it's something you should do everything at the same time. I've been a silent or co-producer on movies, but I've never really taken producer credit. And I usually don't do that. That's a job which is all encompassing during production. And I don't think a producer director, I think, you're dividing your loyalties kind of badly. Yeah. I've asked, I've asked producer directors, you know, everybody, you know, first time I met Robert Wise at a US, uh, USC conference, I asked him, was there any difference between when you were just a director or when you eventually transitioned into being a producer director from the way you looked at films you made? And he was like, no, he goes, I was pretty much doing all the producing work anyway, by that point. So I figured I might as well just produce it myself. But, uh, to disagree with him, which is probably foolish, I always kind of feel like when you become a producer director, and this part like Lucas, all the you know Spielberg, I think your agenda is a little different. So I've always tried to have a separate producer because it's not a job I think you can do and fully concentrate on uh, directing a movie. It's it's you know they're they're both more than 100% of your time jobs, but you could edit and direct because you're really editing after you've already directed. Yeah, yeah. Or music you know these are not you can only juggle so much stuff at, at a time of course you you're better to be around too if you're editing it right 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 and i for most of my features i've not 
been my own editor and people have asked me, well, you edit other people's movies. Why don't you edit your own? It's like, well, I don't want to be alone in a room with myself. You know, you need that other, you know, another set of ears. I've gotten better at that over time, but I used to get that question all the time. It's like, well, you edit for other people. Why don't you edit for yourself? And that was the answer was because I, you know, I don't want to be stuck with my own ideas. You go down, you focus on the wrong things or you just kind of burn yourself out. There's nobody to yell at but yourself, you know. Yeah, I hope I've never yelled at yelled at editors. Usually, you're editing, you're yelling at your equipment. Well, you can always make adjustments to the editor too. If you're watching the footage, you know, if you if you're so into it, you don't know what to cut or not, right? If you're so close to the product. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you need to, and especially in a crew position, because your continuity people, and your actors, and even your DPs or your assistant camera people will be all freaked out about getting some part of the shot wrong, and you're moving on. And they want to redo it for a reason that doesn't matter because the way the coverage is, you don't need that bad part of the shot. But people are worried about their bad work being exposed. So that's some kind of trust. And sometimes you just have to kind of force that on a crew person. It's like, you're just going to have to believe me. I know you made a mistake on the last one, but where you messed up is good on a previous take and we're going to edit it. And, you know, we, we got to move on. And it's not because I'm going to show off you being bad. It's because we've got it. You know, if you don't use every take, yeah. part of every take, why did you do? If you do five takes and you just use all of one, unless it's a one-shot thing where the whole scene is just that. You know, that's the thing with film. And I found working with editors sometimes is they find the first good take and they'll just use that for the whole scene. It's like, no, 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 that's not really what's intended. You know, use yeah. the other coverage. Because um, it's bits and pieces, you know, which are stitched together. So each each bit is is not going to stand alone. It's going to be edited in with other material. I was going to ask, because you started early in the probably the late 70s, probably starting with like uh, films on your own. I know you probably were working a lot with film and stuff back then. So I was wondering, were you one of the, you know, they always have those kids that are making the movies and everything like that, super young. And I know that you went to film school and the original Beyond Dreams Door came out in 83, so. Right, it was done as a short. Yeah, I, I started when I was... I, I, you know, when I was little, I like played with GI Joes and built lots of models and had model train sets and all this kind of stuff. And you sort of you outgrow all that eventually. Uh, that I think is kind of a good precursor to doing film. So some of my early films, I basically took some of the sets and things I had constructed and turned them into stop motion animation movies. So the first films I started doing were stop motion animation. I did a two James Bond uh, sort of parody movies that I should put out on YouTube. They're both quite elaborate. One, they're each 45 minutes long and they both took me a long, long time to do. And really by doing those is what got me into film school because I showed those to um, a family friend who was a professor at Ohio State and he saw one of those films and thought that I should be a production designer because I did this James Bond parody. So I had all these elaborate little sets I built and stuff. I just did that again because I had to, but he didn't really tell me that because you have enough talent that you should like, you know, do this for a living and that was kind of news to me uh so that it, it kind of led into there but it, it started with model trains and building stuff and of course you create your own little scenarios with soldiers and all this kind of thing and and uh so yeah i i started out using the old eight millimeter camera my father had and that camera was half broken as it turned out so then i got a super eight camera i never had super eight sound so the first sound stuff I did was on video and in film school because I had no access to, to that. So my first movies were silent films with with title cards and you know all that stuff. It was all eight millimeter, not super eight, right? 
well, the first one was eight, and then the rest were all super eight until I, until I got into film school. The cool thing about doing it with the miniatures is you really don't have a scale. You know, the ambition is as much as you want to make it so you can do whatever you want with it. Yeah. Do you have any like, do you have any quick inspirations? I imagine with the stop motion stuff, you probably watched a lot of Ray, Ray uh, Harryhausen and stuff like that a little bit, maybe. Yeah. Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah. Um, you know, as a little kid, I always woke up early, which I don't have a problem with anymore. But uh, I wake up early and you'd watch like Gumby and you know, there used, to, there used to be lots of like stop motion animation. There is now again, too, because kids will do stop motion animation on their phones. They figure out how to do that feature. Um, it's a cool, it's a cool thing to do. And yeah, the actors will stand around as long as you want. They'll also fall over and they won't do anything on their own. But um, yeah, you could start shooting a scene and come back the next day and keep going. But yeah, Jason and the Argonauts uh, was probably the first Harryhausen film I saw. Valley of the Guanji, which I think doesn't get as much uh, credit as it should. I saw these in like junior high. They used to show movies at lunchtime. So sometimes I'd go play football. And then when the weather was bad, you'd start watching movies for a quarter. You'd see one in a, in a week. They'd show you in you know, 20 minute chunks, 16 prints. So when you did the um, old uh, movies, did you actually go over with the ones without sound and dub them over at all? I haven't. I should do that too. I was going to um, ask who played James Bond, who was the voice of James yeah. Bond. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I did a little bit of voiceover to introduce. Um, I think both of those have voiceover right at the beginning. But no, if I would redo them, and I could take the faces and sort of animate the lips moving a little yeah. bit. There's an actor named Robert Donovan who did a James Bond uh, parody for a friend of mine, Rolf Kanaski. And uh, he, when I saw his taperage, I thought he was the perfect sort of mix of Roger Moore and Sean Connery, which at the time were the only two Bonds, except for Lazenby, who nobody wanted to talk about. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so I would probably still use him because he's got this perfect kind of hybrid, you know, he sounds like Bond, but not necessarily a specific one. Um, but yeah, I thought it'd, it'd just be a big, it'd be a big project. And I'd have to do all the music because it was all just John Barry and, you know, just stuff I stole at the time. So that, it'd be a big job. I should do it. They were elaborate, very elaborate things. One is James Bond versus the neo-Nazis where he founds like frozen Nazis in South America. And the other one deals with basically a sort of Princess Diana who gets kidnapped by this guy who's going to have a baby with her unless they pay the ransom. So that's the whole, that was called Ransom for Love, which I still think is a good premise. You can kidnap a royal woman and, you know, so then Bond can't, can't really have a relationship with her either. And so those were my two. I started out making them as sort of parodies. But by the time I got halfway into the second one, I was a total Bond freak. And so, so the first one's a they, precursor of Lethal Weapon 2 then, right? diplomatic immunity yeah. yeah exactly um so did you prefer do you prefer film i imagine a lot of the older people that have been doing it no offense i mean like the people that have been doing it for a very yeah. long time that worked on film are always like i miss the miss the film uh, yes and no um the thing was when i when i got it when i was starting to go through film school in the 80s um there was a teacher who was using video as a way to basically do film, which was considered, you know, sort of verboten, you know, but the audio was far easier and the cameras were quiet and it was a lot cheaper and uh, you could shoot more and all this kind of stuff. But so in film school, you're always like, ah, video, this looks like a soap opera. I hate it, I hate it. And then you finally get to make a movie if you have money or whatever, which I did do um, uh, 30, uh, 16 millimeter um, film films eventually in film school. Um, 
and then, you know, I come to Los Angeles and as the years go by, everybody gets all excited about HD and all this stuff. And I was like, oh man, now we're back to video, which I was stuck with when I first started film school. They're like, oh, video, it's the next thing. Let's do video. And so to see all these people I admired, like trying to sell me on how great video was, it gets HD, but it's still video. Um, yeah, I, I mean, sadly now film is really dead. People are like, well, but you know, Quentin Tarantino, it's like, the yeah, film industry will not be supported by a guy who makes one movie every three or four years. And this is not, yeah, this is not the industry. I mean, it's cool that he still does that, and some people can still are able to do film, but film is really dead as a as a as an industry. You know, the few directors who shoot film, you know, they they even though their movies make money, it's such a fraction of everything. And with effects being so computer and video dominant they're really better off dealing with video to begin with essentially so you know i love film uh my last my last and newest feature asylum of darkness was shot all on film 35 film finished on film to have a film print and we made a um an inner positive from the negative so we could make prints from an actual film element the other thing about films now is that for years film basically becomes video immediately. They transfer it and they do digital color correction and all this kind of stuff. So what film really was has been so buried in digital stuff anyway that by the time now where mostly there is no film to begin with, the difference between the two has become very minuscule. Yeah, I can understand that. Although I will say this, I do say a bad movie on film it's better than a bad movie on digital. I always say that <laughs> like, uh, like you catch yourself watching like HD Lewis movies and you're like, I, this is, I don't like this, but I'm going to watch the whole thing. I don't know why. Maybe it's the film. I don't know. Could be, you know, Roger, you had the whole theory that, you know, the 24 frames a second thing was a big factor in terms of film being, I mean, literally film does hypnotize you. You know, you forget about other things you concentrate and focus on. And he, Ebert was convinced that that, the big problem was changing the frame rates that that would be video because it wasn't frames although that's not necessarily true anymore that that was a big sort of somatic element to film um and it really is hip, hip, hypnosis but i think you do that if you're if you're interested in the subject matter anyway but yeah there i mean there is a difference there used to be a wide difference obviously video was crappy let's face it oh, the yeah. resolution poor the colors were, were very limited and kind of weird people would look odd fish color flesh tones and stuff so yeah early on it was particularly appalling (laughs) and i feel bad for a lot of the movies that you like on video that you're like this is never going to look great because it was even that even the time in the early digital like like i always use 28 days later as an example i know they did the weird frame rates and special but that's like this is a great movie that looks like crap and it's always going to look like crap (laughs) and i'm like but oh well you know it is what it is have you seen Apocalypto lately? Because, you know, that was an early big feature, which was all, although somebody told me later, like some of that was actually shot on film. But I remember seeing that in a theater and some of the shots, I was like, oh, this is going to, this is all, this is all the better it's ever going to look, you know, because there is no higher resolution master. Oh, and some wow. of it looked quite good, but I just wonder, I haven't seen it lately to, to see if I would just be kind of taken out of it by the way it looks. Because 28 days later, they were kind of like, well, it has a little bit of that kind of live video vibe. Yeah. I remember working with this guy who was going to produce my first feature and he never did, but he had some like sort of bootleg videos and stuff. And he had the Beatles on like some Ed Sullivan or something like that. And it was a really nice copy. It was black and white video. And we were just both watching it for a couple of seconds. He goes, you know what? He goes, it seems like they're playing right now. 
you know, it's got this live quality. Yeah. It's not, you know, film has got a sort of, and that feel uh, can work for some things like in 28 days. Yeah. Um, the fact that it felt live and real, they didn't go Blair Witchy with it in terms of being shot badly or, yeah. or being presented as video, but it still had that video feel that it somehow helped it a little bit. Again, yeah. now that everything's kind of that way, if you put it up against something else, it might just be distractingly you know, poor looking. That's the thing is you don't want to be distractingly video looking. If it's going to look like video, it should lend itself to, you know, that's why Blair Witch and Paranoid Activity worked because the fact that they felt like video helped sell the story, you know, so yeah, you could exactly. get into it, you know, and then of course everybody just started jumping on it and doing that, but. There's a lot of those. So. A, there's so many now that I don't know, that, but, um, but yeah. Well, they're harder to do good than people think they are. So they're just like, uh, you know what I mean? So like, I know that Fred Vogel said that he was like, I know people will look at August Underground. And they're like, they didn't even try on this. This is junk. He's like, I carried that guy up the stairs in one shot. We didn't cut. I carried two of these like 300 pound guys up the stairs and everybody tells me I'm not even trying. He's like, you guys couldn't do that. You know, that kind of thing. It's like, we planned it. It wasn't just that sloppy as it looks. We actually tried to make it look like that. So, but um, I guess we're talking about film and video. We'll hop into your first feature, which was shot on film, right? Uh, Beyond Dreams Door from 1988. Yeah, yeah we shot it in 88. Um, yeah, that was one where certainly we had been shooting on video and we couldn't afford to do 35 we thought we could and then our investors fell through and we ended up making the movie for what we had kind of left over um but i personally and scott and dirk you know the, the producer and dp us being a sort of core uh, we i i especially wanted to spend the extra money and shoot on film because i felt if anybody ever wanted to make a print one day they could actually make a print even though it would be from 16 negative i didn't know hd was coming but i knew that that would be a better yeah longer lasting master format now we transferred it to video and cut it all on video and then of course some i think imdb might list it as being video which galls me because it doesn't look like video i don't think and we went to a lot of trouble to shoot on film and then transfer from the negative we had to go down the final color correction is basically what we did the first transfer so we had to go down and time every shot you know as we were shooting to edit it um, so there was no color correction done later either. You couldn't really do that, at least not the facilities we were using. Yeah. yeah, we really specifically shot on film. And it was a big extra expense to do that. Oh, I bet. We wanted that, we wanted that film feel. And the opening credits were shot on um, film also. So that because at the time, video credits were really terrible. You know, you'd rent something, you'd put it in. If it had video titles, you were always like, oh, man. <laughs> And it always have the same kind of music too. You knew exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, oh shit. Right away, you're like, oh, oh. Even though, of course, that's what you're making yourself is on video, but still, it's like, so. Um, and one of the things we actually did with the Vinegar Syndrome did with this new release was um, the end titles are actually done in a way that they match the opening film titles. Yeah. So we don't have these kind of clunky video titles at the end of the movie anymore, which was great to finally get rid of. You mentioned that a lot of people said it was, uh, they thought it was SOV. There are so many movies that you used to look up early days of the internet and the best SOV movies, and they'd have like half of them were an SOV. They were shot on film and then edited on tape. There's so many of those like mutilations, truth or dare. People thought the video dead was SOV when it's clearly not SOV because it said the video dead. 
Yeah, when I found I found I hadn't seen that movie till recently, and I just assumed it was shot on video. I was like, this is not video. Yeah, anything which release what got released on video, they would just call video, and so yeah. then you would assume or they assumed it was shot on video. It's like no, it was posted and released on video. Which again, now everything is everything's just digital file. You know, yeah, no prints anymore. Well, video but violence yeah, was yeah. actually on video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, the guy from um, San Diego was interviewing me about SOB movies. I was like, you realize that I think I only really made one, discounting the HD movies, yeah. which I've now done in the real back in the day, because Beyond Your Door was on film. And most of the things, you know, I, in terms of director, I was usually on film. So things would have been your only SOB, right? Things? Yeah, at the time. Yeah, yep, things. That was the first feature I was involved with when I moved to LA. It was an anthology, which I rewrote the one episode I was doing and then helped figure out how to, it was originally supposed to have an extra episode, okay. um, which they then got rid of. So the wraparound, which everybody wanted to reshoot, but nobody wanted to pay to reshoot, um, had to be, then be like re-edited a little bit to like flow into, into a third, you know, third story, because there was an extra bit of um, uh, interstitial material, which got dropped. So I helped kind of figure out that and I was there to kind of make everybody like each other again because the original production team had kind of fallen apart. So I was the new guy who was brought in to kind of be excited about finishing this movie. They'd shot the first episode and all the wraparound and like a year had gone by. Um, and Sterling got me involved and that's how that happened. But yeah, that was the first video feature I was involved with. Somebody told me, well, I didn't tell me, I heard it on a podcast, which is a very funny story that directly involves you. Um, it was oh, Ill, it was either Killer POV or Shockwaves, and it was a guy called Elric Kane. He's a host of the show. I always listen to the show. So they did a screening of, um, or they brought up things, but they were talking about the Barry Gillis starring things, and they said something about that. And then he mentioned that if you want to, he said I directed things. He's like, well, I directed things. Said, what are the odds of both people that directed the movie called Things being in the in the it was a Jump Cut Cafe, right? So were you at the Jump Cut Cafe when they were showing that? Um, no, no, you, that's in yeah, LA. You heard about this. Okay. Yeah. I, um, yeah, there was the other things that I had never seen or heard of. I'd seen a little, a flyer for it someplace. And then one day, like years later, it's jump cut cafe. I was there and, um, and with Barry, right. I think his name is the producer. Oh, it's Barry, Barry? something. Barry Gillis. Barry, I think. I think Barry Gillis. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say Jamie Gillis. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not the same. Yeah, yeah. Since we're talking about, since there's a porn actress in the other things. Yeah. Um, yeah. We were at that place uh, for a screening and uh, somebody was talking up front. It was Brad Sykes, actually. And they're like, by the way, something sort of, something, you know, he didn't say significant, but he goes, both of the people who worked on the two different things movies are sitting right next to each other. So that's how I finally met him. We were just sitting there, you know, we'd come to see another movie. We weren't showing either of those things movies. Um, yeah, and he'd heard of mine and I'd heard of his. Uh, there was a screening at the, uh, at the Egyptian uh, and they had things on listed as, as showing. And people showed up there and it was not the things that I'm involved with. It was his things. I guess some of the audience was kind of angry because they came for one things and it was the other things movie. I actually contacted the Egyptian and I said, by the way, I was like, if you're showing my movie, great. <laughs> I'll happily come down. But if you're not, you've got me listed for somebody else's movie. And, you know, I don't want to take credit for his movie and he doesn't want, you know. Oh, yeah. Versa. 
But yeah, then we met each other at that Jump Cup Cafe going to a screening of an entirely different film. And I've still never seen that. There's also the, there's one of these shot on video um, uh, movies. You know, there's several movies just about fans of shot on video. And there's this whole section where the guy has both things on his wall. He's going, okay, I have, there's three things here, he goes, but these are two different things. Although this thing's is this thing, but that thing is a different thing. So these things are by the same director and that thing's by a whole different, so it's like an Abbott and Costello routine, you know. It's like an Italian horror film, uh, like one of those series or something. Like this zombie, and this is also zombie three, and this one also yes. zombie three, yes, but yes. not really. Yes, 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 yeah. yeah. Yours has a franchise though, right? There's like five of them now. You were talking, you know, talking about SOVs. Like when we were doing those, of course, some people working on them were again, this is video, all these are crud. Who is there an audience for these? Will ever anybody ever remember these shot on video movies? Because that was the whole thing, you know, thing. Uh, and yeah, there is. There's now a, a very specific fan base for shot on video features. But when we were doing that, it's like, oh, is it, you know, are these going to become the, the you know, Republic serials or whatever that people give a damn about in, in a few years. And yes, they, yes, they are. And yes, they will. So before we get into Beyond Dreams door, I basically want to make a statement here. Like, of course, when you see a movie 1989, it involves dreams. There's a major difference between Nightmare on Elm Street and Beyond Dreams door, because in Nightmare on Elm Street, you're entering a dangerous dream world and Beyond Dreams door, the dangerous dream world is coming into the real world. So it's, it's like the opposite. Plus you said the original was made in 83. So not really much to compare except dream stuff which is very broad and for horror movies in general anyways right i think where that yeah exactly i mean there's you know there's all there's dream scenes in lots of horror movies um and there are probably either even other other movies that are just you know where it's all just a dream kind of thing yeah um but yeah beyond your door was done as a short first for one of these video production classes they did these summer group classes at ohio state uh, they were 20 minute movies and so um i i took the class one summer of course i thought i'd get to write and direct and i didn't because i was new to doing that i ended up doing sound on a movie but i met some good friends who ended up and actors too who ended up crossing over with me so the second year i took the class the beginning of the class you'd write a script to be done as a 20 minute thing and so um i had taken another video class before that which i made this very kind of artsy sort of nightmare dream sequence which is actually in the feature and then when I got my chance to do a 20 minute movie, I then had Beyond Dreams Door. And my whole thing was dream movies. I didn't like it when they woke up and it was just all a dream oh, yeah. or, the, or the point that that, that 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 was somehow comforting or there was some difference between the two. So my interest was in doing a thing where there was no difference between the dream world and the so-called real world. It was all equally real. So the movie, neither movie was ever about waking up or trying to figure out what a dream is and what a dream isn't. When Cine Fantastique, uh, which was a, a big magazine, they were the first big magazine to cover Beyond Dreams Door. Um, I talked to the, the writer of that piece called me up and it's like I was given a bunch of smaller movies and frankly, I hated most of them, but I liked yours. And so I want to talk to you and I became good friends with him. John Thonin was his name. Um, that when the, when the magazine was published, the headline on the, on the article was like something like, um, like Nightmare on Elm Street ripoff makes for good movie or something. And he apologized to me. He goes, that was not the title of the article I wrote. That's not the way I look at your movie. But that I think has cemented that in a lot of people's 
you know, people who then talk about the movie because they look up what's previously been written or said about it. And so, yeah, it's about nightmares. The thing, my way of, of looking at it was like, by the time we were looking to do a feature, because we'd done all these shorts in film school, we wanted to do a feature before we all went off into the real world and did whatever made industrials or whatever we were going to do, which was a really smart decision to make a feature. I didn't realize how smart a one at the time. Um, by that point, Nightmare on Elm Street had come out, the feature. So now if you did a movie where you were dealing with dreams and what's real and what is it, that was a commercial idea, thanks to Nightmare on Elm Street already by that point being essentially a franchise. So it helped make our movie commercial, but I was not borrowing or inspired by Nightmare on Elm Street or, you know, I liked Nightmare on Elm Street because it had that element in it. Slasher films to me were a little too uninteresting. There was no real imagination involved or you weren't building worlds or getting interested in um, ideas. Uh, and Elm Street took Slasher, which was still the dominant, you know, if you're going to make a horror movie, basically slasher films were what you were making. That was largely what was being made. There were some monster movies, thanks to Alien and then Prophecy, which was, a, you know, but by and large, especially on lower budget, it was all slasher stuff. So when I saw it on Elm Street, I was like, oh, finally something interesting going on. Yeah, it still has this slashing element, which makes it commercial, but it's also got ideas in it about dreams and, you know, the, the um, what you can do with the story and the creatively, it opened up a whole new avenue. So that's why I liked it. Um, why well, I like Nightmare on Elm Street, but yeah, so Nightmare on Elm Street helped make our movie commercial because otherwise maybe my little weird ideas about dreams and stuff would have been considered too out there. But with Nightmare on Elm Street, then out there was sellable because that's what you're doing. If somebody's oh, going to yeah. pick up your movie because they think they can sell it. Uh, and if it's too weird or too standalone, they don't know how to sell it, then your movie's in trouble because they, you know, people want to be able to sell it really easily. And so Nightmare on Elm Street helped our movie, but I was not consciously ripping it off. And I was there first only in terms of like wanting to do a horror film revolving largely around nightmares and, and dreams. I would say your movie actually feels to me more like a Lovecraft inspired movie because and it's, it's strange the way it is. It's not my dreams are coming to life. It's somebody else's dreams are coming to life. And it's a weird chain that we're all getting sucked into and constantly reliving it which I think is a very Lovecraft thing. Like, I think that what's the one, the Eric, uh, the music of Eric, what is it, Zahn or something? I think that's, Eric's on. Yeah, yeah, I think that's kind of like that in a little bit, you know, just discovering something that's gonna, you shouldn't really discover it because it's gonna mess you up. Yeah, and Eric Zahn, I love that story. Yeah, I discovered Lovecraft around the time I started uh, film school. So in the, in the 80s, I found Lovecraft, largely because I liked Robert Block. Yeah. And I went to buy I went to buy um, textbooks at a bookstore, and there was this collection which Robert Block had done of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft stories. And so he'd written an introduction and supposedly selected these stories. I mean, he knew Lovecraft, so I'm sure he had. Um, so I read *The Shadow Out of Time* first, which is about a sort of kind of previous. These none of these which I originally read were um, mythos stories. You know, Lovecraft now everybody just thinks it's all about Thulu yeah. and the whole mythos of Lovecraft. But their Lovecraft's about a whole bunch of other things too. So the stories I took to, so I read that. I read, um, I think, the Shunned House. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and um, and the Outsider, which I never really liked, but the Outsider did have an impact on Beyond Dreams Door in terms of this whole idea of uh, an outsider, literally like somebody looking in 
you know, into sort of our world and the kind of sort of subterranean idea. In that case, the guy we find out is coming up out of the grave. But I had this whole thing as a kid. Um, I had this idea of this monster sort of coming up out of the sewers, to, like grab your car tire and like sort of pull your car down into the sewers. So I had that sort of this sort of like that became sort of and that was that was only a dream to me. So maybe that's why I made that a, a dream monster, because that was where that image came from of course that i've still not worked that image into any movie yeah uh, i mean dreams give you a lot of freedom you know what i mean and it also gets you a chance to dive into your subconscious this one's somebody else's subconscious but i don't it, it's an interesting movie i mean there's so many concepts in this one that might be the only knock somebody would have on it is there's a lot going on so it, it may take one or two views to grasp it but those movies usually get more interesting as it goes on because i know i spend my time just thinking like about like the thing i'm like I wonder if they knew they were the thing when they were the stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like, how does the science work of it? Just thinking about how did the monster, you know, this kind of stuff like that is interesting to me. So I feel like your movie is pretty good at doing that for me. Good. I mean, the intention is that you could watch it once and keep up with it enough that it makes a certain kind of sense. But if you do go back and watch it, that there's more things you can pick up. You don't have to, to hopefully enjoy and just kind of, you know, you're following this, lead character through all these weird things some people get caught up with trying to figure out when he's awake and when he's asleep which i think the movie pretty early on tells you is not makes no difference it's not going to save you it's not going to save him it's not what this movie is about everything becoming equally unreal you know so the dream is reality and it can you know the monster brings its sort of its sort of abilities of a dream into reality so it can like make a house disappear and things like that but yeah he the main character sort of tapped into this um nightmare which is kind of like a, a view of another whole alternate universe you know parallel world um which if you have dreams and you deal with them regularly they never really suck you in they have no power but the whole point of this movie is the guy never dreams so any positive dream energy he could have had is is gone and so all the, the dream eventually gets so angry that the only dreams he's going to have are are nightmares and sort of evil dreams and that's that's what enables them to kind of come into come into his world. And yeah, the idea that the character has no dreams. I mean, this is based out of film school stuff where people are always like teaching about all these layers of meanings. So yeah, the dream meaning is also like ambition or goals. You know, the guy's like obviously he's a good student, but he's a good student at math and a lot of very kind of cold personal things. He's not connected with other people. And in the movie, he has to finally try to connect with people in order to save himself. Um, so, you know, it, it's loaded with a lot of double meanings on purpose because that's where it was coming from. Um, and so when you learn things in film school, you're taught about all these various things that films can be. Um, another thing in the movie was the whole poetry uh, yeah. sequence. Um, I thought the dreams should talk in their own way. They wouldn't talk like you or me. So I had seen some sort of video art pieces, which were about poetry, but the poems were always brought the poem, you know, music, music videos. Sometimes they stick together and sometimes they don't. This is the way these poetry pieces were. So people shoot some kind of interesting video and find some poem, but the two really never didn't have anything to do with each other. It was just sort of accidental if the visuals had anything to do. So I wanted to write a poem for the visuals uh, to begin with. So that again, the dream would have its own way of talking. Um, so there's sort of a certain kind of um, poetry or rhythms that the dream has that, um, 
that the rest of the movie it doesn't so that was sort of an experiment also and you know the dream scenes vertigo i mean you know that's part of the excitement of of uh of doing a movie is where you can actually i, I like montages yeah where you're telling a story through a collection of images not just through conversations with people or you know so that so the dream was in there sort of for me so I mean, I loved horror movies, Lovecraft at the time, my understanding was was not public domain yet, so I couldn't do a literal adaptation. Um, I didn't want to get into too complicated a sort of sub-universe, so I kind of created my own in terms of the dreams were the alternate world, the, the old ones were in the dreams kind of thing. Um, but yeah, that was something that I insisted on, on keeping in the feature version, which turned some people off to it. You know, the fact that, oh, that poem, that's it's too, you know, terrible poem i didn't like that you know why didn't you just stick to the monsters and you know i liked all those elements um so yeah it's set up as kind of a mystery and it's set up as something that maybe you need to see more than once to fully get into but there's also some people get too much into what the individual dreams mean they're like so interesting what the meaning is that the impact on the story is that people are dying and things are getting increasingly weird and dangerous that's really the that's the meaning of the dream specifically as it goes along. Um, that's what he's trying to get out of. And yeah, trying to then figure out what those other little elements of those things mean, that's fine too. And hopefully that makes a certain amount of sense. <coughs> Throughout the movie, in the beginning, you see him and you see the sort of dinosaur in a frame. Yeah. And there's like a toy dinosaur his his non-existent brother has, because he's dreaming about having the brother in a family he never had. That, of course, is the beginnings of the monster. The monster is always kind of part of his uh, personality, a part of his head. And obviously, the monster gets bigger and scarier as he gets older and builds up more of its own energy. Yeah. So there are sort of through lines. There's, the other thing with the movies, there's a lot of the colors are sort of symbolic and organized in a way to try to help connect, connect things. Sometimes the characters dress alike at moments where he's literally passing the dream from one person to another, you know, where they become... Um, a target for the dream you'll notice the way the colors line up the greens and the blues and of course red you know any and also when you're going to kill somebody in a movie just as a practical matter uh we're both wearing dark colors now don't have them wear dark colors because blood will never look like blood under dark color it's very hard to photograph yeah so usually in all my movies if somebody's going to die they're probably wearing tan or white or something like that because the blood will actually look like blood and you'll immediately see it because you put blood on other colors oh, and you yeah. come just photograph it, <laughs> put a blue light on something red and try to make it look like blood. It yeah. looks like pancake syrup and uh so anyway. But I mean that is kind of like if you boil Lovecraft down, it's this kind of catching madness from someone. And basically in this movie, you catch his in his madness and you said earlier he's trying to reach out to people. So he tries to reach out to people and essentially he kills them all because of it. Right. Right. So maybe he yeah, shouldn't maybe, have. <laughs> yeah, maybe he shouldn't have. Yeah. Yeah. And he comes to realize that too. You know, he yeah. says, you know, you're right. I did kill them, but it's the only chance we have now is to work together. And we can't, yeah. I guess one quick thing about it that I want to mention you mentioned maybe possibly hiring a, like a genre actor for Dr. Knox. Did you reach out to anybody or did you have any people in mind? I know you mentioned one. We, yeah, Dr. Knox, um, who's not in the short, the short version is the two guys. There's originally there was a scene with a girlfriend which got dropped from the short because there was no follow up to it. Um, but in the movie, we needed more characters. Obviously, adding a sort of professor on top of the other stuff was uh, an obvious one. And his part 
he is the sort of first to die, but it was a part that you could shoot at in a week or less. Yeah. So if you're looking to do a star cameo, yeah, you don't want to just be on the phone in two scenes with Henry Fonda as the president, you know, that, yeah, that whole yeah. bit. Um, and any number of people, and Roger Corman knew he's funny who would Mark Singer as the president, you know, he knew he was going to be in three scenes on the phone, exactly. sitting behind his desk. Or in a hotel room. <laughs> yeah. At a convention. So we didn't want to, we, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, yeah. That's, that's a given. So, so the Knox role wasn't written just to have a star, but it was written, and obviously that character is older than the other characters. So, yeah, I mean, I loved Hammer films and all those kind of guys. So, yeah, I mean, Donald Pleasance was sort of a, would have been an obvious choice. Obviously, he was making money doing Halloween. Uh, Peter Cushing uh, would have been great. Um, those were probably really the two it was kind of written for. To Almost the nervous types, right? Yeah, exactly, right, right. And Peter Cushing's sort of a smaller could be intellectual, could be a little dangerous. You're not quite sure what's going on in there. When we lost our bigger budget in the shooting 35 thing, <clears throat> it was really down to like kind of bare bones. What, how little can we make the movie for? Because whatever we could scramble together was all we could get. So we gave up on, at that point, we had to either make the movie or not. And so we gave up on trying to like chase down. So we never made any calls or anything. I think probably for an extra... <clears throat> 10 to $20,000, which would have been a substantially big bump on our budget, we could have got somebody. Somebody later suggested like John Carradine, who would have been okay. He's almost too creepy. Too 1940. <laughs> yeah, almost too creepy, I suppose. Yeah. Um, to the other ones were more contemporary at the time, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I don't think those guys ever get old to me, but I understand what you mean. Oh, I know. It's a little. Dated. I know. Yeah, I know. He was kind of, yeah, he was sort of suggesting more like, Frankenstein and 1930s and 40s, you know, stuff. Yeah. And his more recent associations at the time before his kind of career, he had kind of a comeback there at the end. You know, he'd really like bottomed out in these things where he was the president, you know, the weird scientist in two scenes, you know, in these terrible movies, uh, which now I watch and kind of enjoy. But uh, yeah, so I, that was that was the sort of star part. And that's the reason why we gave up on it because we really needed to kind of shoot this movie. Um, out, we were already making plans to move to Los Angeles and stuff. And so it was either this movie gets made or it never does. So we gave up on trying to find a star. There was nobody outside of us to try to like go do it. You know, there was nobody in the production who could have taken the time to make the calls. Had we done so, I think we probably, you know, if we could have gotten somebody for three days for $10,000, it would have been well worth it. The movie would be better known. It would probably be known as a you know, John Carradine movie or whatever, rather than as a Jay Wolfel movie. Not that's the way I was thinking at the time, but um, you know, it would be part of their it'd be part of their filmography, which would then drag us into a hole. Now, over time, the movie's kind of gotten discovered on its own anyway. But I I do kind of regret it just because since then I've learned that doing that is not as impossible as you might think. If you give somebody a good role um, and can pay them a reasonable amount of money, if you want them to do this, you know, if you want Daniel Craig to come play James Bond in a movie, you know, you're going to have to spend millions and millions oh, yeah. of dollars if you want him to come play the Easter Bunny who speaks Russian. He'd do it just as an actor, as almost <laughs> kind of a lark. His agents probably wouldn't even want him to do it, but he's like, no, no, when, am I, when else am I going to get to play the Easter Bunny? Russian so, Easter Bunny. Uh, yeah, yeah, Russian Easter Bunny. Yeah. Um, so that's a, big, that's a big thing in terms of like getting, getting actors, if you don't have a ton of money, getting uh, good actors interested in something you're doing is to do something different now of course 
have Donald Pleasance or Christopher Lee or, you know, been in horror movies. Yeah, so maybe that wouldn't have necessarily protected us. But, uh, you know, we're not asking him to come play the Frankenstein monster or the, you know, the automatic expert like Pleasance became the expert in everything, you know, Halloween. Yeah. You know, in this case, the character is an outsider who's not sure what's real and what isn't. And you also, if you did get somebody like that, then you get a little bit of that psycho factor in terms of I don't think you expect them to, for the monster to kill them off. Oh, yeah, yeah. Since, that character, since the monster gets, since the guy who knows how to kill vampires and kick ass in horror movies is suddenly wiped out of your movie, you hopefully you'd get a little bit of, a, oh, shit, now who's going to save his ass? <laughs> the, the star is gone. Steven Seagal, an executive decision, right? Exactly. I love that. <laughs> I'm glad that. he was out, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, no, he... he they used him just enough to be good, you know. Yeah, just enough to get rid around. of him. Yeah, if he was the guy crawling around instead of John Leguizamo later, you know, the movie <laughs> loses its. But the, you know, in that case, he, and he got a chicken out of that movie because he was supposed to be on the posters too. Oh but yeah. I was surprised, you know, and then he didn't want to do that, so the poster just has a big blank spot where Steven Seagal's head was supposed to be. You know, Kurt uh, Russell's kind of off to one side, and there's this place where Steven Seagal's head was supposed to be. I'd rather just see Kurt Russell, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Me too. Just put his head right in the middle close to where it belongs. Um, I got one more quick question on uh, Beyond Dreams Door. I noticed you mentioned Fulci, and you mentioned Seven Doors of Death, the AK title for the Beyond. So I'm wondering if the title Beyond Dreams Door was uh, insp- inspired by Seven Doors of Death, possibly? I, the version I saw of Seven Doors of Death was Seven Doors of Death originally on a big oversized videotape, and it was kind of the hacked up version and stuff. Yeah. I'm not sure if I even finally... I, well, I did. I'd seen Fulci movies before I made this because um, there was a shot we didn't do in the movie. Um, when there's this sort of central dream scene, there's all these sort of dead dreamers or sort of zombies outside this abandoned house, which in a way is a little bit of a Night of the Living Dead kind of homage. As we were starting to pack up, the sun was going down. And I was like, oh man, if we put the lights inside the house, we could put the dead people in there and you'd see these shadows moving oh, around, yeah, which is yeah. pretty much a shot right from the beyond, you know, where you see the people inside. The, yeah. And I kind of didn't do it because I was like, well, that's a little too, now I'm just ripping Fulci off. Um, yeah, Beyond, the beyond, yeah, beyond um, really came more from Lovecraft than that, but I was interested in that movie and that movie certainly has the whole and then they will face the truth, you know, the whole, they step out of their world and there's certainly elements which are similar. Uh, and I had seen it by the time I made Beyond Dreams Door, but I think I'd already written the script because I wrote the script several years before we actually got to make the movie. Um, so I knew a lot more about Fulci by the time I made the movie than when I wrote the, the screenplay. Well, I mean, Lovecraft and Fulci to me in that kind of era, they go hand in hand. They're very similar in that kind of weird dream logic. And that's it. Yeah, and that's his most Lovecraft-like movie. I, I presume that he got the idea Beyond the Wall of Sleep, you know, I mean, that's the Lovecraft title that, um, uh, so yeah, I was looking for a Lovecraft-like title, and I knew those doors were an actual physical location, so they're Beyond the Door and then Dreams, so Beyond Dreams Door is how the title came to me. And I think I wrote the poem before I actually wrote the rest of the script to try to figure out what that was, but it wasn't just a door into, uh, the thing was that that door is a physical location in our film school. Yeah. I was always like, well, what's underneath them? And so that again got me thinking about, well, what's, you know, what's on the other side of that door? Christopher Lee always said the most successful thing in movie was a closed door because you never know what's going to be on the other side of it. And you build up a lot of suspense walking up to the door. If it's going to open first, you know, you see the doorknobs turning slowly. Carpenter does that well in some movies. The thing, the great shot of the door thing turning, you know, when they're all. Yeah. 
So that's how the whole the whole idea kind of came from is what what if the door opens up into something that's not what you'd expect to be there. And there's some stories there's stories like that where people look out a, a window and they're looking not into they. Uh, there's a story where um, I forget the author where somebody moves into an apartment or a room they've not been in and they look out the window and you know, they don't think much of it. When they go outside and look back at the house, they realize that what they looked at outside that window is not what's outside that window. Yeah, that's always haunting. Or yeah, they move somewhere and there's a locked door and it's like nailed shut. You're like, it's like, don't open it. Just just leave it alone. Yeah. Trust me, it was nailed shut for a reason. Yes, yes, yes. I did a short film called Come to Me Softly that got worked into the long version of Beyond Dream Store, yeah. which was based on a Hawthorne idea. And the idea was, what if you heard a knock on a door that doesn't go anywhere? You know, a locked door, a door, but you know, like the closet, like you're at home at night and somebody's knocking from inside of your closet wanting to get out. And so that whole, that I turned that into a whole movie of this series of doors a character keeps hearing knocks on, keeps opening and they just keep leading deeper and deeper into something. Yeah, doors are scary. Doors are scary, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I guess we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Ghost Lake, which was 2004, right? Yeah, I made Beyond Dreams Door. It came out in 1989. By the time it came out, I'd moved to Los Angeles. Okay. Um, and uh, But before we left, there was a number of treatments which we developed with the original distributor, Beyond Dreams Door, to do his movies. We ended up suing them, and they settled out of court and paid us what we would what we what they should have paid us plus more um but there was a whole bunch of material developed that never got made into anything um ghost lake uh the original title was the empty lake was a was a sort of half-formed treatment i think i'd started writing a script maybe six or eight pages of something and a general idea for this place where um my family had a cottage called rushford lake in new york so it was originally written almost as a sort of like female version of Beyond Dream's Door. There's a lead female character who right at the beginning is tossed into this. In her case, it deals with ghosts. Um, but then it, it never got finished. Yeah, but that was so it was originally developed as one of several things that were follow-up projects for Beyond Dream's Door, all of which have become scripts. Um, only one, well, two of which have become movies since then. The other one being Asylum of Darkness or Season of Darkness, which was written as a follow-up to Beyond Dream's Door, also in terms of being weird and what's real and what isn't and all this kind of stuff. That was um, picked later to be made as a movie by another producer out here who then never made another movie and written as a script. And so all these things over time get made. But Ghost Lake was originally one of these follow-up projects. So I always wanted to go back to Ohio to make a film because I thought I could make a bigger production, more interesting on a lower budget there than I could in Los Angeles, where I was working for a bunch of different companies, editing and also directing movies. Uh, but I could never convince anybody to let me take their production out of LA. They always wanted you here. Your schedules were always very short. Um, so eventually, um, we're going to do something. Um, Johnny Young and I, who met and worked on several things together, looking for something we could do as a standalone movie and uh ghost lake i knew the location it was actually in new york but my cousin still owned that cottage and so i went back i had to think that it was on a big five inch floppy drive this whatever resistance of the script i had to go pay somebody to pull that off for me and i turned it into a script um to be shot for that location very specifically and that location was a artificially made lake where there used to be a town underneath it 
that was the real facts of that lake. So that was the kind of basis of that story. Um, but again, it was it was a it was a woman um, as the lead, and in this case, it's a, a again there's a sort of Lovecraft inspiration. Um, her last name is her name is Rebecca Haster, and there's a Lovecraft character whose last name is Haster also. There's also a scene which is basically a, I think the thing at the doorstep okay. where the fisherman comes to the door and like vomits up all this water and is making these weird glug glug sounds. Um, those are the real sort of Lovecraft uh, aspects of that particular movie. But yeah, so then it just it finally got made then in 2000. I think it came out in 2005. It was made in 2004 um, during Hurricane King Katrina. Yeah, which uh, meant that it rained. We weren't anywhere near Louisiana, but we were in the same sort of storm belt. Oh, so yeah. it rained and was unseasonably cold, you know, during that whole shoot. Yeah, I noticed a lot of breaths and a lot of people in water, and I was thinking, man, I would not want to do that because if you ever been in a movie and you're getting wet, you're getting sick. You're gonna get sick because you're traveling. You're not <laughs> You're getting sick. So just just take some vitamin C. But um, you said this was not shot in LA, or was it? You said Ohio. It was not. It was shot in New York, a place called Rushford, New York. Where was that again? Um, it's Rushford. It's about an hour south of Buffalo. Okay. Okay. It's yeah, it looked cold. Late. Yeah, it was very, very, it was very, very cold. We waited to do the stuff in the water until it was relatively warm, which was still very, very cold. We had a space here they could jump out and we kept putting it off. I was like, we got to wait for a warmer night um, to do these water scenes. Um, there's less stuff in the water than maybe there was in the script for that reason. Uh, oh, yeah. Most of the movie, you're wondering what happens underwater, but you almost never get underwater. Um, which again, was sort of, I think you need to sort of make virtues of your limitations. So originally, the idea was we'd put some cameras underwater or do something which is completely impractical, especially with HD. Oh, yeah. But uh, the way the movie turned out, you're largely, you don't get underwater. So the whole mystery is like, well, what's really under there? And I just sort of, just sort of said, okay, well, that's what this movie's about because you're not going to get underwater very often. Right at the climax, we do briefly finally see what's under there. We hint at it. Yeah, it was pretty ambitious. Like right when I went, when I saw it, I was like, there's a lot of boats and like a location. It looks like a pain in the ass because water and electrical equipment and cold is just like, nah, it's not, it's a, pain in the ass for sure i guarantee it that that movie was basically made by seven people including the actors who usually crewed on it um two of the two guy actors uh, i've remained friends with all of them um but uh they actually were from that area which i didn't know so they found us some additional actors yeah uh, who they've done you know stuff with and their families were able to come visit the set which i'm sure was fun with them they still live and work in la greg and and uh, tim um, but yeah, that movie is basically made by seven people. We shot, I believe, for 26 days straight, no days off, um, which I don't recommend. It's just kind of the way, you know, we were, we were going to try to shoot it in 18 and then the weather like slowed things down to just such an extent that we just had to shoot extra days. Um, there was virtually no pickups on that movie. So we got everything we needed in that shoot. There were problems getting the effects done. Pretty much all the actual effects were shot in the last day and a half of the movie so it really wasn't until the final day or two while the shoot that i realized i even had a movie oh yeah and i was like there's still so many missing elements and stuff it's like this movie we've shot all this stuff but we're still not complete but it'd be really pretty much the last day after we did this one scene i realized i could finish the film and i was just so happy because for most of that 26 days i had no idea 
if we could ever finish, if there was a movie there. Um, but the other thing about that movie is we largely slept and lived in that cottage at that lake. So there was almost no driving to locations. There were some, but pretty much we would get up and walk right outside and we could shoot. So we could shoot part of a scene if it rained us out, we'd just come back when it wasn't raining a couple days later. Um, so in some ways it's ambition, it was a little, it was a little easier than it looks at some point, but it was not an easy film to make. I think it's one of my better movies, probably. And your actors and can't they, escape if they're on location, right? Yeah. And cell phones don't work there either. There was really no <laughs> internet or cell phones. There weren't any distractions. Oh, I do uh, see Tatum that a lot. Just people yeah, Tatum, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. During I, my one movie during the dubbing, the, the actress was basically like this, and then she'd like say her line, and then she'd be like this, and she never missed a cue, but it was just like, oh, my God, put the freaking oh, yeah. give me that phone. Anyway, the first day of that shoot, Tatum, who was the only one who had a cell phone, dropped it and it broke. And so that was the end of anybody having a cell phone. And basically there was no reception there anyway. Yeah. So no internet, no cell phones, no waiting on people to just go bang on their door. Get up. We got to shoot right now. Um, so on that level, it was sort of easy. But yeah, it was a very, a very tough shoot. But a really cool location because it was cold. Uh, we had all this cool mist and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, it was really, and we had basically had the lake to ourselves. Everybody had gone home. So it was like this huge set of this lake, just all to our, all to ourselves. It's pretty much starts kind of like a classic ghost story in like, you know, the changeling. It always, a lot of ghost stories always end up with like starting beginning with the tragedy. And the, the way the story unfolded, it felt like maybe there was something personal with like loss or something in there. I'm just wondering. The, um, uh, I did have a sort of back before, well, before and after, it's really more about sort of a loss of a, a weirdly a girlfriend than a, than a death. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the loss going on. But it is sort of reaction to two sort of relationships that ended before I actually got around to making that movie. Um, so the rest of it's just good acting or, or, you know, good writing or good atmosphere. So, I mean, it, it tells a sort of personal story, but not specifically about death. It's, it's more about, I mean... That whole story is set up where, um, yeah, it's a sort of shuttered character who like goes out for a night on the town and has a sort of one nighter and this essentially like kills her, kills her family. I mean, that's the sort of sexual Freudian hurdle. She's, yeah, yeah, I noticed that every time she has it. sex. <laughs> yeah, and you know, in movies that became a whole kind of thing after Halloween. You know, Carpenter saying, "I didn't mean to kill the sexual revolution." Sorry, <laughs> and that really did at the time people saw that movie it associated section of death in, in a sort of scary way um and so ghost lake is really about her not becoming that character being that character you know yes i'm gonna have i'm gonna have a sec i'm gonna have there's a sexual element to my life despite these horrible things yeah so it's a sort of challenge for her not to give up on what you need in your in your life um, despite it sometimes resulting in, in bad things. So that's my plea to, you know, as bad as it gets, keep having sex. It'll, it'll save you in the end. They're not exclusively, you know, every time you do it, it's not just bad luck, really. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Don't, there's no cause and effect. It's a but coincidence. She thinks, there, she thinks there is, you know, that's yeah, the yeah. whole. Well, that makes sense. Uh, there was a, we did a re-edit of that movie at one point based on some notes where people felt that you shouldn't a couple friends of mine thought that you shouldn't know right up front what happened yeah. so that she's running from something that you don't know what it is and then later in the movie she does tell the story of what brought her there when she meets somebody it's like what happened to you 
and that that's when you should real, re realize what caused it all. So I did an edit of the film that way, where you didn't know right up front what, you know, we knew that people had died, we didn't know most of it. And uh, I showed it to a distributor who passed on the movie. And then watching it again myself, I was like, the movie doesn't work now. If you don't know why she's so panicked, you know, there's plenty of mystery in the movie anyway. You need to know right up front what is driving her out of her house into this weird location. And the whole movie didn't work when you took that out. It was an interesting lesson to learn. The flashback worked fine later, but though you just didn't, you didn't connect with her immediately unless you knew what the sort of horror was that drove her yeah. to, to face the ghosts. Did you want to talk a little bit about uh, the upcoming release of Homegrown Whores Volume 1 from Vinegar Syndrome? Sure. Okay. Um, yeah, Beyond Dream's Door, it came out in uh, 1989 in the States. And uh, Vid America was the releasing company who were out of business by, I think, like about 1992. So the movie would turn up in like used bins and stuff like this from time to time. It was released overseas in several countries also. Japan had a pretty big release of it. Um, so eventually when DVD was coming around in 2000, whatever it was, when you know everybody was starting to realize that we could take these old films and have do them on DVDs, um, I, 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 did a, I did a big DVD version of that movie that Cinema Epoch ended up bringing out, but I basically produced the entire DVD on my own and then took it to Cinema Epoch. Um, I shopped it around through a whole bunch of companies, took a year, um, nobody picked it up. Cinema Epoch picked it up and brought it out on DVD. So after that, um, people would call me up from film festivals once in a while and wanna show the movie. Um, one time in Austin, Texas contacted me and wanted to show a print. I was like, there is no print. <coughs> and then it did come out as a little, uh, as a standalone sort of limited run to this company called Lo-Fi, which actually brought it on the VHS again. This was maybe six years ago, six or seven years, ago. very limited run. Um, then four years ago, let's say like bootlegs of it started showing up on YouTube, like really regularly, yeah. the whole movie all of a sudden. And I would have them taken down and then not long after that, uh, distributors started contacting me asking, well, what's going on with the film? You know, could we release it? Um, and so uh, ultimately four different distributors wanted the movie. I ended up picking Vinegar Syndrome. Uh, the final, or maybe five did, because somebody came to me after I'd already made the commitment with Vinegar. As we talked about earlier, since the movie was shot on film, I didn't want to do a fakey up-res re-release. It already come out on DVD and standard yeah. def because there was no HD the first time it came out. So when these companies contacted me, I was like, well, we didn't cut the negative, but there is a negative. So I'd want to go back to the negative and transfer it. So we have a real Blu-ray, a real HD version, oh, yeah. not an upgrade. <clears throat> and they either couldn't do that or weren't willing to the expense for that. And Vinegar Syndrome, when they contacted me, understood that they had never done that with the film previously, but they understood that people had done that, you know, television production before that, you know, Star Trek The Next Generation was shot on film, but all the post was on video. I mean, it was a standard thing for TV. Um, so they were willing to like undertake doing the job. Now, Beyond Your Door was shot on a pretty low ratio, but that still meant transferring 13, about 14 hours of material to cut down into an 80 minute movie. Uh, it all basically had to be eye matched. Um, there was no, I did have window burn time code, but anyway it was a massive job yeah it's rough and so yeah it's rough i you know 
but they were willing to do it. And then you'd have a real HD, there'd really be a reason to watch it in Blu-ray. It wouldn't be like an up-res of a standard deaf video, you know, kind of thing. So how was it working with Vinegar? Did, were they good with it? They were good. They were very committed and they, they did a really nice job of doing that, the, the frame match edit. And we cleaned up like hairs and dirt, which had always been in the film. Um, we had to deal with some, uh, a little bit of missing material, which we had to source from two other different sources to put it together. The opening titles, which had been shot on film, um, that had gotten lost. The negative was missing, but I still had the actual physical um, sheets. They're plastic yeah. sheets with the lettering on them. So I actually had somebody recreate the opening titles from the original title cards. It was literally animated. You know, each move is a separate cell. It's cell animation for the titles. So that was redone uh, from the original elements. And uh, and then the mix needed to be laid back and all this kind of stuff. And they also ported over all the DVD extras. When I did Beyond Him's Door the first time, by that point, there had been some people who'd contacted me who really liked the movie. And so I was like, people who like this film really like it. So I want to try to satisfy its biggest fan. You know, so anything that's not on there, let's put on there. Let's make the ultimate DVD and extras were a big selling point of DVDs originally. These special features yeah. and extras were why people bought stuff. So Al and people had contacted me looking for DVDs. Um, you can still buy used ones. Um, and people had contacted me. I said, the movie may get re-released, but it'll probably never have this many extras on it again. So you should really buy that first DVD if you get a chance. Um, I've sold a few copies to people that way myself. So yeah, and Vinegar Syndrome, and Vinegar Syndrome does a lot of movies. So you're part of a big machine that's putting out a bunch of titles and working on a whole bunch of things at a time. So there were gaps where I was like, is anything going on with this movie? Um, but they came back and they, you know, and they did port over virtually all of the original special features. They shot new interviews with uh, a lot of the cast and crew. I found some behind the scenes footage, which had gotten lost, which I've discovered since. So we'd never been on anything before. So that's on there and uh, uh, some audition tapes also. So all the old stuff is on there, plus um, some new old stuff and then whatever they've done. I've not seen what they did with these new interviews. So I don't know what everybody said. Uh, there's a new commentary track. I know what everybody said on that because I'm part of it. Yeah, that's cool. But, uh, so they were committed. Yeah. So yeah, it does have all the, you know, but I don't know what the menus look like. I've not seen the final disc. Oh. Um, so there's, you know, on the other one, the, the original DVD, I knew everything on there because I produced it myself. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. By the time it came out, it was just a relief. It's like, oh, thank God. <laughs> thank God that's over. At this time, there is kind of an element of surprise, you know, because they're doing the work. Well, they're pretty much one of the most respected. Like I buy a lot of disc and everything, and I have a lot of friends that buy a lot of disc and I'd say about 50% of them, you ask the best company out there for horror movies and genre films, it's Vinegar Syndrome. I think I think they personally do the best job on stuff. Like a lot of the movies, you know, some of the movies aren't great, but a lot of the movies I love and they do a lot of gems and they always release the movies that you may not like, but somebody else is going to love it. So when you find that gem and they, they clean up, clean them up really nice. I was wondering if you actually have seen any of the print, any of the footage cleaned up from them. I have, yeah. I mean, they sent me... Um... Yeah, I, you know, they, since they had to eye match the original edit, they sent me a copy and they had missed a few things and things about dissolve lengths and stuff to clean up. And then they sent me a, a check disc of the final color corrected version from the, from the 2K. Yeah. Um, I sent them, 
myself and the DP and the producer sent them some notes. So they've done hopefully those fixes for the final, but that final I have not seen. But yeah, I've seen the HD version. It's almost like being on set again. That's great. Um, the, you know, the 16 is what it is. And the movie has lots of blues and reds in it, which VHS did not handle. Oh, yeah, well. yeah. You know, reds was kind of bloom. So now it's not just something red. It's like shades of red and shades of blue. And so that was real satisfying and interesting. And 16, yeah, you're seeing more grain certainly than you normally would in a 35 thing, but they did a, they did a little bit of suppression on that, but it's not distracting at all. Um, so yeah, it really does look and sound the best that it ever has. And like, sometimes, like I said, it was like being on set again. The other thing is originally they put this short, which I talked about kind of me softly, that was originally cut into the film to pad it for length. Because original release, they wanted it to be 86 minutes long. The original, the, not Vid America, but our original sales agent. Um, so that short is on there as a standalone movie. And they retransferred that. That was shot in 35. So that looks great, too. So you get that 30, 35 short, um, which was originally cut into the movie. I like it as a short. It's just cutting it into the movie was, a, you know. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Sort of, sort of bogus. Yeah, the other thing I learned, um, you kind of mentioned was... Um, the original version since it was 80 minutes they wanted to pad it out so i really learned a lot first dealing with a sales agent in terms of like since the movie was short they wanted stuff added in and they had all these ideas about well one of their ideas was what if the whole thing's just a dream at the end we just like we show everything you've seen in the movie in like a fast that of course was the movie i specifically set out not to make yeah we've seen the wizard Sometimes of oz right uh yeah remember that oh my god it's all yeah exactly life. you can't do that more yeah. than a couple times right <laughs> Yeah, that was great in that, but yeah, it's all a dream. Um, <laughs> a friend of a friend of mine uh, wrote a Bruce Willis movie, which he was making right after The Sixth Sense. And so The Sixth Sense, Bruce was, you know, the twist ending. That's what, oh. Yeah, yeah. So he was always right. thinking, so making this next movie right afterwards, he was thinking, oh, I got to have a twist as good as The Sixth Sense, you know. Not, forget that the movie had nothing to do with the twist ending, but he just thought, Oh, the movie's called The Kid. So one day he came to the writer and said, I got a great idea. What if it's all a dream? Of course, they talked him out of it. But uh, yeah. yeah, what if it's all a dream? That only works in Wizard of Oz and Nightmare City, right? <laughs> That's right. And then the nightmare became reality. <laughs> <laughs> that movie, you don't care, though, because it's so, you're like, oh, I know whatever i love it yeah it's like that that's kind, of, that's kind of the greatest thing in that movie yeah and then the nightmare became reality i'm pretty sure i probably used that as kind of a joke on the set of beyond his door at one point or another <laughs> and what happened and the nightmare becomes reality what else could happen but anyway when i, when I started dealing with the sales agent when i was starting to deal with sales, when i was starting to deal with that sales agent you know we were i started to learn why sometimes you're watching a movie and there'll be stuff in it that seems like it was done by other people or has, you know, like the movie's so good and suddenly there's something in there that just seems so stupid or just from some other movie. I think usually that's become because of a distributor or a star or somebody's insisting on adding that into the movie. You can kind of tell, um, but I didn't really understand that because you watch a film and suddenly it has a really dumb ending or there's some scene that's so terrible it takes you out of the whole film and you need to kind of give the filmmakers a break because probably it wasn't their idea. Sometimes it's even like a network or a TV station that needs more running time and they actually do their own creative edits or 
you know, the reels get put together backwards, just all this crazy stuff and smart asses. And of course, we're all smart asses when we first start making movies. You know, you're like, oh, filmmakers did a great job. And then they just lost their minds. Like, you know, somebody <laughs> else's mind, somebody else's mind was 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 running the show. You know, I didn't understand that before making a movie and dealing oh, with yeah. that kind of yeah. input. Input was my input. Uh, yeah. And the bigger the budget, the more likely it's going to happen. That's why, like, you watch the Marvel movies and you're like, these are fun, but you can tell they're all the same movie. Like the showrunner, there's a showrunner on this chain, like whitewashing everything, like except a couple of them. But it's just the way it is. Yep. Yep. No, it's yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Every yeah. It, what's weird is that when you write a script in in Hollywood or any script, but script in Hollywood, they spend a lot of time on these scripts. And they're really careful about giving you all these notes and stuff. And then when they actually make it, they basically just all the wheels come off. Like everybody and his brother can come up with a scene and put it in the movie. The actor just bought a new boat. We need to have a scene with a guy in a boat. They just do it. So they spend all this time beating up the writer and controlling it. And then when they really should make sure it's the movie they were trying to make, they just do whatever, you know. Yeah, you can see a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned Bruce Willis earlier, and you, I just immediately thought of Die Hard, even though Die Hard's great, but it's just like he was worried about them filming from above because he was going bald so young that he was worried about it when he was that young. He's like, don't film me like that. But uh, I, I mean, I, a lot of these big stars, they're, they're vanity. I understand, I guess, to a certain point, but. Yeah, they're like, if people are paying attention to that, you know, you're not really doing your job. You know, I mean, the, the angle needs to be up there for a reason that's going to. Oh, yeah make the scene work and you know it's not we're not trying to make you look bad we're trying to make a movie here there's this story uh, yeah there's this clint eastwood story i love that i don't think has been told anywhere a friend of mine courtney joiner told me the story where he was making a perfect world with kevin costner and kevin costner got angry because some extra kept blowing the scene he wasn't he wasn't hitting his he was driving this tractor he was supposed to stop and all this stuff and he wasn't doing it and he was blowing the takes. And so Kevin Costner finally was like, and the guy's like, I've got headphones, the headphones aren't working. I can't hear you telling me to stop. And so Costner threw a fit and like went in his trail. I can't work with stuff like this. So Eastwood got Costner's double and just like it was a wide shot and just shot the scene anyway. And so then Kevin Costner like comes out of his trailer like an hour later. It's like, okay, all right. I, you know, I, I, I've calmed down. Let's, what do we need to do here? Let's, let's do the shot. And Clint Eastwood was like, oh, we shot that. We shot that shot. We've already moved on to something else. We're here to make a movie, not fuck around. Yeah, that's the one thing about Eastwood is like you watch movies and he's not really that afraid to look stupid or look weird in his movies. Like he does some weird things. Like I always remember that scene. It always is stuck in my head and Unforgiven, where he he they shoot the guy, the first guy, and they feel real bad. And he's sitting there picking the rocks like a four-year-old, real nervous four-year-old, knowing that he just feels like shit. And I was like, that's a really unique moment that takes away that that whole movie is kind of about taking the mystique away from the western you know but it's just a great scene and you just don't see that much from guys like that doing that kind of stuff vulnerability yeah oh yeah and some scenes he you know he he did later where he's playing like old guy and he'd take off his shirt and you could tell he's i mean he's in shape but he's not you know he's got an old guy he's not charlie bronson yeah yeah and so you know he, he, he was perfectly willing to do that he, yeah the point is i'm a i'm an old guy so i'll look older if i don't have my shirt on kind of thing you know where other actors you know re- refuse to do that or get a body double or something yeah. silly you know but uh i just wanted to basically mention i'm really glad that all the features are ported over from the old disc because 
if you're a crazy collector like me and stuff like that, you always want to make sure you got your disc ported over the features because then you can retire it. You know, you don't have to have it anymore if because I got both the DVDs, um, the original uh, Cinema Epoch, and then I have the Lo-Fi DVD. And now finally, I will have the uh, Blu-ray set. Well, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, the yeah, and it is the director's cut. Um, and there's you know, it's a whole different transfer. So the each version has had its own, hopefully better things. So hopefully now we've made it even better. But yeah, I hate that where you buy something, but then it's like, you're still stuck with the old thing because there's some extra or something, you know, these things behind me, like there's like multiple copies of some stuff in there because each version comes out with something cool and loses something that you thought was really interesting. You know, exactly. these rights, they can't acquire it or they just won't buy it. This stuff just gets lost, you know, over time. Or commentary, they say something they shouldn't have said, and now they don't want to put it on the disc because somebody slipped about somebody else. But uh, if you have anything else to mention about it, I know that we maybe mentioned the two movies that come with it, uh, Fatal Exam, which I'm not familiar with, and Winter Beast, which is a pretty crazy Evil Dead stop motion weird movie I haven't seen in 20 years. So, I, I, Yeah, I, I've never seen Fatal Exam. I think I've seen Winter Beast, but uh, the scenes I've seen from it, which they've shown, I don't remember it. Think I'd have, I think I would remember that scene, but I remember some movie about totems with stop motion in it because there's not a lot of those. Yeah, yeah, it's a strange uh, film. Yeah, so I'm interested to see that again. I mean, I know that movie was shot over a long period of time, so that always movies get really inconsistent when you have to do that. Beyond Moves Door was shot, it was shot pretty much in a real concentrated amount of time, so at least we didn't have that problem or that issue to fight with. But if you're making a movie on your own, Sometimes you got to shoot as long as you can and then come back to it later. You get a bigger movie, but then sometimes I, I was hired to edit a movie that the lead actor had gone bald and they'd shot the film over a two-year period. So there were scenes where he's got lots of hair and then he'd be bald, lots of hair. Eventually they put a hat on him. So now he's wearing a hat. Now he's bald. Now he's got lots of hair. That's what two years is pretty dramatic. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, when filmmakers, I don't think even noticed it initially. And when they started editing, they're like, oh man, we got to give them a hat. People can tell, you know. And there was some cool stuff. They went, they got, yeah. Uh, assistant editor of mine worked on Waterworld. And after Kevin Reynolds was fired, Kevin Coster both reshot and hired CG guys to like make him look less bald because he has like cornrows and his hair's wet. So yeah. sometimes he felt he looked too bald. So they went back and reshot and did this stuff just to, you know, Again, you're talking about vanity. It's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is what it is. Usually, when you're going bald, you get five, 10, 15, 20 years. If it goes real fast, that's, I don't know that some people are unlucky yeah. like that. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. But who, you know, who knew that would, that would be their problem? And in that particular movie, they went to Alaska. So they had this spectacular stuff with him in Alaska, but now he's wearing a hat and he's bald and he's got hair. And so it was like, it's like, do you throw out the really cool footage in Alaska? with like whales and looking off a boat you know i would i don't think the movie yeah yeah i wouldn't i they i don't think they ever finished it and i don't think the movie ever came out but the some, some people who were, wanted to pick up some of my movies are going to hire me to fix that one for them but unfortunately i don't think it's fixed i bring up a story from uh i recently got that nosferatu in venice the um 
the one uh, with that Klaus Kinski, and they tell this ridiculous story where they shot all this stuff. There's this big party going to happen, this parade. So they it was before Klaus Kinski showed up. So it was supposed to be a spiritual sequel to Nosferatu, the Herzog one. So they like filmed this extra with the bald cap and everything running through all these great like parade. And it was a one time deal. You get you get it when you get it. So Klaus Kinski shows up with long hair and he says, "I'm not putting that bald cap on. I'm not doing any of that." So they're like. Uh, and they had to throw the footage away. I, I would have said, okay, um, I'm getting somebody else, but hey, I, I guess I'm in it. You know what I mean? Yeah, Kinski was Kinski wanted to make his Paganini movie yeah. uh, right after that. I mean, that was his dream project. So he wasn't going to, he's like, no, I grew my hair out for Paganini. I'm not going to cut it. And I hate those bald caps, you know, so get that stuff away from me. I remember kind of liking that movie. I haven't seen the Blu-ray. I know it just came out. But uh, yeah, and then he directed some of that movie too. Yeah, it's kind of a crazy. It's nuts. I mean, it has a good cast and um, it's fun. It's fun watching those guys just be weird. I mean, like they said that, I remember hearing them talk about the Donald Pleasant just eating the whole time. And I was like, that's bold. And I watched, I was like, yeah, he's just, he's just in the background eating all day. He could have been, he could have been in Beyond Dream's door snacking on some cakes the entire movie. <laughs> yeah, see, I just should have known that at the time. That was, that was my curse. You were talking about, I read Kinski's autobiography at one point. I loaned it to a friend and never got it back because the book was later recalled and they like cut stuff out of it, which Kinski was talking about and sort of pasteurized it and brought it back out. So I wish I still had that original. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a scorching autobiography. I mean, he's, you know, he's as hard on himself as on anybody else. Um, but yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah, so. Um, is there anything else you wanted to say? I mean, well, Klaus Kinski, we could have got Klaus Kinski to be, uh, you know, <laughs> it would have never came out. <laughs> well, that's true. We'd never finished shooting potentially still be shooting it right now. You'd be using He'd his dead body though. Like, yeah. He's like, oh, you got to wait till I finish shooting with finish shooting Fitzcarraldo though, down in South America, you know, so I'd still be in Ohio waiting for Klaus Kinski to, I'd be having somebody create. I'd be having somebody create a CGI Klaus Kinski so I could somehow finish Beyond Dreams Door. You know, connect the dots. Um, I really appreciate you coming on and talking. It was fun. I'm sorry we, I kind of messed up the timing. It's a little hard to get timing down on these Zoom calls. I don't think people realize that. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Nothing's easy. <laughs> if something's worth doing, you just that, that. That's my message about making films too. It's like. Don't make a movie because you think it's going to be easy because they never are. No. You got to make it because you want to make it. Because otherwise, if you go in thinking it'll be easy and then it's not, now you're just angry. You're still, you're, now you're stuck. You're, you're stuck making the movie anyway. Now you just have a bad attitude about it. Oh, yeah. Because some, some of the best movies are, are the hardest to make, like Ghost Lake. Beyond Him's Door was not impossible to make, but it was a very difficult shoot. We had to reshoot a lot of the special effects towards the end and, uh, you know, so nothing's ever easy, but if something's worth doing, don't let the technology stop you from doing it because it will always try. You know, your greatest new app, the thing which is supposed to make life easier, you know, will crash or corrupt or update. And, you know, don't ever think anything will be easy and your life will be a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. 
So again, I want to thank you. And um, I think that um, the homegrown horse is in the vinegar syndrome package for April this month. You probably, if you order it, it should be getting it at the end of the month with the three movies. Um, there's all new features and there's all the old features and stuff like that. I moderated a commentary with Nick on there, the lead actor. Hopefully that turned out decent. I have not heard it. Um, if it's bad, it was um, Vinegar Center fault. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, yeah, I, I've not heard that either. So that's another sort of surprise feature for me is I think Nick was happy with it. He was finally glad to do that. I was supposed to come there and do that, but I think my father died or there was some, there was a bunch of sort of complications. Um, so I wanted to get to do this with you because I know you're a real sort of advocate for them picking up the movie to begin with. Yeah. I should also point out real quickly that you're Dave Parker and there's another Dave Parker who's a filmmaker who I've yeah. written stuff with and done productions with. And so like things and things, there's Dave Parker and Dave Parker and they're not the same Dave Parker. No, he's the, he's the one that's much better at what he does than I do. I'm just doing this for fun. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I always did that. And I he, and he knows it too, because I brought this up and he's, oh yeah, I know that guy. Yeah, I used to bother so, him when yeah. I was like 12 years old online, uh, right when the internet came out, I was like 12 or 13. I looked up filmmakers to talk to and ask annoying questions. And he was nice enough to answer some of my questions. And it was funny that he had the same name. So I always kept uh -huh. up on his movies. So, Yeah, no, he's a good guy, a good filmmaker. Yeah. yeah, he and I go way back. We were both new kids in L.A. around the same time. So we met when we were both relatively new to Los Angeles. We we're like almost exactly 10 years different in age. But in terms of our LA experience, you know, we, he worked on things that was the, I, I actually paid him myself on that because I wanted an assistant director and they weren't going to pay for one. So I paid him out of that and uh, he helped me edit that movie. And he said, I taught him how to edit and he edits a lot and stuff. So groovy. But anyway, so yeah, one Jay Wolfel, multiple Dave Parkers, not to be confused. Yeah, <laughs> but it's the most generic name in history. So um, I just thank you for coming again and, uh, Check out the new release. It's pretty, I guarantee it looks great. I think it will. Uh, we'll all find out together. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. So. All right. Thanks, man.